0: It was eerily quiet, and then my mind was kind of like you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, This is how you brush your teeth brush, rinse, repeat, brush,
1: rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. The two girls, and it was
2: like, He'll have to give us a ride, he can't fill us though he can't refuse us, he'll let
3: us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in the- this
4: look right.
5: the hey guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Rob, how you doing? Do you feel like you're kind of like underwater or something?
6: I do. I wish you were sitting on the other side of me because like... Everything to my right is just gone. Uh-oh. Do you want me to move? No, no, no.
5: <laughs> well you can hear it through the headphones, though. Yeah. So that's that's good. Hey, uh, just real brief, guys. Um, just wanted to tell you about how this show is going to go. This is going to be a little longer than normal show. So we have Robbie Graham coming on, uh, able to get him on. Last week, he was supposed to have been on, but uh, that got canceled. Uh, So we have him coming on, and then we are going to be joined by Susan Demeter St. Clair. And then a little later on in the night for us, we're going to be joined by Red Pill Junkie and Smiles Lewis. This is all to talk about some more of UFOs reframing the debate. So, without further ado, guys, we're going to go to these interviews, and we'll see you on the flip side on Conspiranormal. Hey, guys, back on Conspiranormal, and we have the first guest of the night on the line, and that is Robbie Graham. Robbie is the editor of the book, Reframing the Debate, and it's good to finally have you on, Robbie.
7: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much.
5: We got uh, two Robs here in the room.
6: You can never have too many of us, Adam. <laughs>
5: <There's>, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> uh, I just want to get with you on how you got kind of started in this interest of UFOs. I know that you have another book out about the uh, silver screen saucers, which I'd love to get you back on for sometime. Uh, but uh, how did this kind of start for you? Like, what, How did this begin your, like, kind of your personal journey with this?
7: My personal journey with UFOs goes back to my childhood, seven years old. Went into school, primary school one morning. A friend of mine um, was telling the whole playground that a flying saucer had landed on his car the night before. And it made a dent in his car, and it was the talk of the school, and it captured my imagination. And uh, when you're seven years old, you don't really, you know, have any um, means by which to kind of uh, fit that into the real world. It, it may it, it holds just as much appeal as fantasy as fact when you're seven years old, and, and right. so, um, so, so. But what I found was that. Um, throughout my childhood, I was fascinated uh, by all things weird and wonderful: UFOs, paranormal phenomena, cryptozoological anything that was that was um, you know out there. And but UFOs started to hold particular fascination for me throughout my teen years. And it was in my late teens that I revisited this case that had it embedded itself into my into my. Young brain, this this flying saucer on the car um, in 1988, and uh, I discovered that it was actually um, a legitimate UFO close encounter case. And I went and interviewed the uh, the witnesses, the, the the parents of my childhood friend, um, who were by that point in their uh, late 50s, early 60s, and I uh, I interviewed them as a 17, 18 year old. Um, and you know, so the interview that I did with them would have been terrible, (laughs) But, (laughs) but, but, um, it, I was, I was sufficiently, um, uh, savvy enough by that point to, to recognize that, that they were clearly recalling, um, an incident that had greatly impacted their lives. They were not UFO buffs. They had no interest in the subject outside of this experience that they'd had, uh, one night in August of 1988. And, um, it, it, as I say, it clearly profoundly affected them. And, uh, it was a, you know, it was a close encounter. I could recount the details of it here, but I won't cause it'll take too long, but it, sure. it suffice to suffice to say, um, it, it you know, it, it really kind of got me and, and I was hooked and I was hooked before that, but I was definitely hooked by that point. And that, was kind of the first uh case that I kind of sort of investigated um uh, as I say it would have been terrible investigation when I was 17 18 years old but it was it was the first one I took an active interest in and went out and interviewed witnesses albeit decades after the fact and um so yeah I my, my fascination intensified into my teen into my late teens and then kind of my obsession with film studies um, uh, sort of took over and uh, academically, and then I went to university and studied film, and sort of UFOs got put, put on the back burner. And you know, what the hell do you do with UFOs anyway when you're a teenager? You can't really, you don't have any standing in society. You know, you don't have a platform, yeah. and no one takes you ser- No one takes you seriously at the best times with UFOs, let alone a teenager. So what do you do with it? You don't you don't do anything. And so I, I you know I went to university, I studied cinema and media, and I went on to teach film and media, and all the while. Um, UFOs were there at the back of my brain, and uh, and then around 2007, actually, um, I started to get the idea that I would combine my fascination f- with um, UFOs and uh, and cinema, and because there seemed to be a, a gap in the market, so to speak, no one seemed to everyone seemed to be fascinated by the idea of of Hollywood's depictions of alien life within the UFO community, but no one seemed to be specialising in the study of, of that aspect of so-called geology. And so I thought I might do something along those lines. So I started to read some articles. And uh, I st- uh, in 2009, I started to do a PhD on the subject of UFOs in Hollywood, which went wow. three years. And ultimately, I, um, I sort of decided that that was not the best route for me, even though I'd passed my um, supervisor and all I had to do was really complete it, but I didn't have, because f- it was self-funded, and I didn't have the funds or the honestly all the will to carry on with it to be honest with you it was kind of the wrong path for me at that point in my life um and i decided that i would do it as a populist as a more popular book rather than an academic one which would be read by sort of five people in the university library <laughs> Sure. But several years later it turned into silver screen sources um uh the book that you mentioned and and, and you know so so, but then, uh, so so uh, we're now up to what sort of 2015? thank <laughs> God, a book took a long time to write. That um, was, so was published in 2015, and then it was even before that book was published. Though, back around 2013, I started to become seriously disillusioned with popular approaches to ufology, um, not with the subject itself, or the you know the phenomenon, uh, but with. Uh, with how people approach it and with the utter nonsense that surrounds it and uh, I'd start to become quite annoyed and infuriated and I I wrote an article (laughs) in in 2013 called Letting Go of UFOs which vented a lot of my frustrations um, about the field and that article served as a sort of letting go for me. Um, I stopped becoming so religiously attached to the subject and i started to recognize in fact that 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 uh, you know this is a faith-based field i mean yeah. it, massively so it's a quasi religion it's a new age new age religion ufology frustratingly because it is built around something that appears to be genuinely anomalous and potentially profoundly significant but nonetheless the phenomenon itself does invite religious belief and um once you start to recognize that you can sort of go ah okay well that's why I react the way I do, and you know, when people challenge me on, on assumptions and and uh, and uh, cherished beliefs surrounding this subject, because it it does become become this um, all-encompassing and uh, you know consuming faith, and uh, so once you start to recognize that, you can step back from it and say, okay, well, maybe I've been looking at this all wrong, and uh, maybe I've been asking the wrong questions, and uh, maybe I should surround myself with some more uh more nuanced more subtle voices uh people who have some some more sophisticated ideas that go beyond the simplistic reductionist um, ideas that have come to define popular ufology and we can get into that as we go on
5: uh or as we end- like to say nuts and bolts or eth yeah
7: eth at the same time you know i i and you know i'll i'll, I'll repeat multiple times throughout this conversation you know i i don't reject the eth in fact i think that it has a, a great deal of merit um but a lot of the people who who have contributed to this new book reframing the debate um are if not anti-eth then you know they they have very little time for it um or, uh, on the whole the book seeks to look beyond the eth without rejecting it outright but as i say as as the editor of the book um not that my opinion sort of counts for much in because I don't actually uh although I've collated the essays I've collated them in a way that challenges me personally um so so my perspective is not um directly reflected I think throughout the essays and a lot of, some of the essays really you know do challenge me and uh and almost annoy me which is I think their value <laughs> if Sure. Uh, and so 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 um I don't want to just you know you don't want you don't want to just Read something that confirms what you already like to believe, because what's the point in that? You know. Um, So, so yeah. Yeah, So anyway,
5: yeah, I'm kind of on the opposite end of that because a lot of this stuff, a lot of these essays in these books in this book, kind of confirm what I already believe. (laughs) (laughs) I might be the only one out
7: there. I don't know, but no, there are a number. There are. There are. I uh, think there are probably probably quite a few like you out there, Adam, in that sense, and that's and that's great. But but at the same at the same time, uh, I know from some of the reaction that we've had that it it, it it that it has seriously challenged and offended and affronted um some some readers which which is what we expected it would do and is what yeah. we hoped it would do because that as i say is the value of it because you know you know um you need to i think people need to allow themselves to be confronted with with challenging ideas that oppose what they uh what you know what, what they've assumed for so long um and what constitutes their faith because Sometimes you need a bit of a what I call a slap in the face to ufology, or you know, a slap in the face generally with these kinds of things, to shake you out of um, a certain what, perspective.
5: What kind of reactions have you gotten? What's what's kind of the gamut um, of the reactions?
7: Overall, overall, the, the the responses and the reviews have been very positive, um, uh, very very positive indeed. Um, but within that, there have been some extremely, you know, extreme negative um uh, and angry reviews That's outraged right. r- reviews and responses um some of them i received even before the book was published <laughs> some of mm-hmm. these i would received i would received emails from people uh, and messages from people uh, very angry at the very premise of the book um you know that, that, that how can there possibly be a debate you know uh, when there is no debate you know ufos or extraterrestrial vehicles the government knows it and all we have to do is <laughs> kind of Push the government for disclosure and get you know get and that's the, that's the end of that new paradigm, new world, et cetera, et cetera et cetera and so as I say uh, this was expected and uh, any book like this is going to provoke extreme reactions either overwhelmingly yeah. positive or overwhelmingly negative. It's it, I think we'll 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 receive very few um, that are in the middle although there will be some I think but but uh, yeah and, and that's the point of it is to shake things up a little bit um, so. So yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got in a very long answer to your original question, how I got to where I, to where I am here now, and and how I got into it. It's just something that I've always been drawn to, uh, the subject. Yeah. But it's same here. It's not something that I've been drawn to through through direct experience. I'm not an experiencer. This is same not something here. That Did itself on my life. Yeah. Uh, directly, it's just something that I've um, have a natural, you know, that's pulled me naturally, I guess, toward it.
5: Yeah, it's always fascinated me. I can tell you that from the time that I was that I was little, the whole thing. And I, you know, I used to really buy into the extraterrestrial hypothesis, especially when the X-Files was on back in the 90s. You know, I was really drawn to that then. And probably sometime in the mid 2000s is when I kind of started to change my mind about it that there might be something greater or even more to it than just the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I have said on this show a few times that I would be disappointed if it was just ET. <laughs> Cuz I think the experience is so much more profound mm. than that. Um especially, you know, like well, you know what Mike clelland writes in the book. But uh to to kind of go back to this idea of UFOs as a religion. I don't know if you've heard the latest radio misterioso um, with James Clarkson, who was yeah. a MUFON director in Washington, and how he's Yikes. resigned basically because Mufon has in many ways that he describes it has almost become cult like in their in their activities. And because that they just want to believe all this kind of like outlandish, really outlandish stuff, and have nothing to do with like, you know, looking at it from a scientific point of view. Mm.
7: Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, well, the first essay in in, in this book is by um, Chris Rutkowski, and his his whole essay is is devoted to right. the idea of, of of UFOs or ufology as religion. Um, and he t- obviously talks about the the well documented actual cults which have arisen on the fringes of ufology, which have had some very um, sad ends, as Heaven's Gate, for example, and others. Sure. Um, but, but even within the mainstream of ufology, um, you know, dogmatism and, and uh, quasi-religious faith are evident in, I mean, almost every kind of uh, uh, statement and assumption that's made, uh, especially online, and, and to be honest, the UFO community really only exists today uh, online, I would say, or at least, you know, 98% of what would be constituted as the UFO community is is in cyberspace today, um, which is obviously very different to how it was, you know, like in the nineteen nineties and, and prior to that. Uh, the internet, of course, just changed everything, um, and so so yeah, it's it's it is to my mind unquestionably uh, uh, a religion of sorts. Um, it is a new age religion. It is obviously it doesn't qualify as a as a religion officially and it doesn't tick all of the religious boxes but uh it is it is quasi religion to be sure and uh i think it's important that more people recognize it as such so that as chris rutkowski suggests in his essay we need to you know stop we we need to be able to make a distinction between scientific ufological research and stuff that is more faith-based and if if we can separate the two um and, and see them as two separate camps uh, then we can maybe start to make some actual progress, um, and, uh, and 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 ufology might become more legitimate in in time, or or not. But certainly it can't if if we're never to to separate it from the more um, distinctly religious aspects uh, of the uh, you know of uh, of the field. And so, uh, you know, so as I say, I think. Um, what what we do here is is we try to be critical but constructive in 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 all of these essays, and we we we, we represent a range of differing and conflicting alternative viewpoints on UFOs, and and uh, so so you know <laughs> I deliberately put Chris's essay at the at the start of the book because I recognise that it would be a huge challenge for typical um, ETH nuts and bolts disclosure advocates anyone who uh, you know, or or anyone who's just kind of aligned with, with general thinking in popular ufology will, will find Chris's essay a real challenge. Um, and, and, that you know, because he, he characterizes a great deal of people who are in the UFO field as zealots.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
7: uh, you know, a lot of people who are just going to switch off as soon as they read that and go, I don't want to read this. I don't want to see this. Um, and that's why I put it there because… You know, if you don't agree with his perspective, you don't have to feel offended or affronted by it. Just acknowledge that it's his perspective, and that there may there may be some objective truth in it. Um, read it, and, and then go on to the next essay, which is totally, totally different by Mike Cleland, as you say, who, and that one's written from the from the perspective of a lifelong UFO experiencer. Um, and you'll get something completely different from Mike Clelland's essay as you would have gotten from um, Chris Rudkowski's. And then the following essay after uh after mike's is by uh, jack brewer and his is again totally different to to mike's mike emphasizes the huge importance of the ufo witness in in ufology and ufo studies we need to place greater emphasis on the on the testimony of the ufo witness the individual witness mike says whereas then jack brewer says that's Not the case at all. We should almost completely disregard individual witness testimony because it can't really—it's—it's of no use. And he goes on to explain why that's the case and makes a very strong case for that. Um, So you'll think so from each essay to the next, you'll—you'll be confused. You'll be thinking, well, what? Well, what am I intend? You know, what does this guy? What does Robbie want me to to believe here? Am I meant to agree with this guy or that guy? Um, and I feel totally. That's the point. We don't want you to believe anything. We want you to yep. erad- eradicate belief. We want you to be unsure. We want you to shun hard and fast conclusions, and just to kind of be open minded and explore all perspectives. And then at the end of the book, if you want to reach a conclusion. Go for it, but it's not important. Ultimately, And we recognize this. Recognize that UFO—that that, you know—trying to find an ultimate truth behind the UFO enigma is a long uh, and slow process, and and uh, you know, it's not something that we're on the verge of understanding as a disclosure. to well, believe it's something that we're in the infancy of.
5: Well, that's the thing. It's like you know, the the contradictory, contradictory essays are kind of a microcosm of the ufo phenomenon itself because the ufo phenomenon is inherently confusing and if anyone is going to sit there and say well there is a structure to it i don't even see how they can even get that way because they would have to cut different aspects of the phenomena out to make that conclusion and you just can't do that
7: that's right that's right and that's that's another theme of uh, theme of the book which is right. you know that this idea of high strangeness and how a lot of UFO reports um, from across the decades are actually characterized by extreme uh, weirdness um, that often doesn't get focused upon in some of the most popular reporting of ufo cases um you'll find that ufo investigators and organizations and even the witnesses themselves in a lot of cases filter out some of the more extreme weird high strange aspects of their encounters Mm -hmm. which don't seem to fit neatly into uh an extraterrestrial hypothesis box um things which overlap with um with paranormal and even cryptozoological phenomena, all sorts of psychic phenomena um, seem to be bundled in with with what would be termed, you know, UO phenomena. Uh, they blur a lot of lines, and it, it gets very, very freaky. All sorts of stick stuff happening, and again, very, very common in close encounter cases, but it's overlooked I think, um or omitted in a lot of cases, and uh, so so that's something that's explored. In quite a lot of detail throughout throughout several essays in in this book, these high strange aspects of of UFO encounters. Um, I
5: love that stuff. That's the stuff that I love the most. Is just the weirder it gets, the 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 better the story, in my opinion. And, yeah, and, yeah. You, and you can't help but laugh at some of those because they're just so weird.
7: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, You know, Lauren cuts in his essay uh, in the book, he talks about cases, (laughs) a a particular case um, where uh, a UFO witness or experiencer um, is is sort of reporting um, uh, alien beings in his room at night in sort of a typical abduction scenario. But, you know, in one, one instance, they, uh, these beings seem to steal his oreo cookies from the side of his bed
5: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that, exactly just like there's there and there's a mundanity to to a lot of this stuff too like it's it's strange you have that high strangest aspect to it but there is there's there's also this aspect of the mundane mm. like you know like the the pancakes that you know Josh Kuchin likes to talk about yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's weird, but at the same time, it's just oh, they gave me pancakes. <laughs> There's a mundanity to to this to this as well. I wanted to ask you about how you kind of structured, and I think we've kind of answered that a little bit. But as an editor, how did you structure the essays? Um, was it? Uh, were there more, were there some that you felt like that you, okay, this needs to go in front into the front of the book. This needs to go in the back. I mean, how did you kind of, how did you kind of structure the book with all these different essays, with these different points of
7: view? It took a long time to, um, uh, I mean the book, so the book from start to finish from conception to publication was about a year, about 12 months, um, just over okay. maybe, uh, which is quite quick actually considering, um, as I said, there were fifteen people involved, fourteen essays, and a forward by Diana Pasolka. And so, it was. It took me a couple of months, probably, um, to figure out exactly how I would how this would be structured. Um, because first, I thought I might group all of the essays together um, so that they would be. Themes would be complementary. You know, you would have a couple of essays focusing on one theme together, a couple of others focusing on another theme together. But then I thought it would actually be more uh, jolting for the reader to kind of mix them up to the extent that was possible. Um, and that's what I did in the end. I, as I say, so I start with a, a real challenge from Chris Rutkowski, uh, excellent, excellent essay. Um, but again, a real challenge for, for UFO believers for kind of the, the true believers. And uh, and then. Follow that directly with Mike Lowen, so, so it's much that's much more palatable to the true believer. But also Mike's value as a as an experiencer is that he is unusually um, self analytical and critical, and he refuses to draw steadfast conclusions about the nature of his experiences. He kind of, you know, he he has no doubt that he has had strange anomalous potentially otherworldly experiences but he refuses to kind of put a label on those or a label on himself and that's very that that in my experience is very unusual for ufo experiences um who often like to believe one thing or another uh, and often very strongly that's a generalization of course because there are other people who are like mike but not too many in my experience and mike's also a wonderful writer so he has huge value in this book um and also i thought it's important for people who who haven't you know, read too much UFO literature to be able to get an understanding of what an experiencer actually experiences, you know, so that they can read some firsthand testimony to to get inside the head of an experiencer because then, you know, the essays that follow, kind of dissect those experiences and, and really intellectualize them from an objective standpoint. So I think it's important to give voice to the people who've had these experiences. And that's why several of the writers in the book are experiencers themselves. So Mike is an experiencer, Lauren Cutts is an experiencer, Robert Brandstetter is an experiencer, although not all of them would, would use that term, but they've all had UFO close encounters, which have had profound effects on them. Um, and they all f- have different Kind of perspectives as to what those encounters actually represented. Um, So, and then some of the writers have have never had um, close encounters, but a lot of them have had UFO sightings. Um, And so, so some of the essays are. You know very anti materialist so J- Josh Cutchin's essay is called um, you know moving ufology beyond materialism and he, he sort of introduces this magical paradigm uh, I- into the equation and, and and then you have others who are uh, kind of encouraging more traditional scientific approaches and methodologies to UFO study um, and you know so Micah Hanks does that in his his essay he actually proposes very ambitiously a um, a completely revised uh close encounter reporting system for, for ufos to replace the Neck system for the close encounter of the first second third fourth kind etc um because he micah says quite rightly that it seems to be outdated with what we now know um and so he, he attempts to update that so it's kind of a very scientific um perspective from micah there and then you've got others which are very academic um like uh, uh M.J. Benias's, which looks at capitalism and UFOs, you've got um, you know some that look at the overlap between UFOs and other paranormal phenomena. Um, so Sue Saint Clair's essay um, looks at that, the parapsychological aspects of UFOs, um, and that aspect is explored in other essays throughout the book as well. So um, Smiles Lewis, a Red Pill junkie, and others touch on that. Um, Greg Bishop and Robert Brandstetter's essays finish the book, and I. I wanted I wanted to finish the book with their essays and and it actually ends on Robert's essay um because they take it down they take it back to the role of the witness you know what mm-hmm. what popular ufology does is it almost <laughs> excludes entirely the the role of the actual witness in the experience um what popular ufology does is it has a tendency to completely externalize the UFO experience as something that is out there, independent of us, that is happening to us. Uh, and, and we are just spectators. Whereas, you know, what Greg Bishop and Robert Brandstetter and Ryan Sprague and others argue to an extent is that we, we kind of do ourselves a massive injustice um, there because we are hugely complex uh, animals, machines, Uh, We barely understand our own cognitive processes. We don't understand the nature of our own consciousness. Um, But we do know that we have great untapped potential, unexplored potential. And so, you know, what do we bring to these close encounter experiences, in particular as witnesses? To what extent do we shape these experiences? You know, um, how do our cultural filters, um, uh, uh, biological filters shape what we recall um and recount and so it's taking it back to a, it's it's really stri- we, we really strip down the ufo experience to uh to its core and 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 i think these are some fundamental questions that a lot of people really don't think to ask and uh, we don't have solid answers to them we don't really have answers to an awful lot of stuff in this book but we are asking um uh where possible, different questions to the to the ones that are typically being asked. We are trying to push people in more, uh, uh, potentially more productive directions. Um, you know, and, and, and what we're doing here is is um, we're not reinventing the wheel, but, you know, there are a number of new and potentially revolutionary ideas presented in this book. But for the most part, what we're doing is we're presenting, or rather we're representing existing theories and concepts from some of the um, the greater minds of the past, like Jacques Vallée, John Keel, uh, and many others, and so a lot of the British 14 writers as well, albeit we're very consciously trying to bring these ideas to a new generation of readers. It's a generation for whom, you know, ufology means little more than the ETH, exopolitics and disclosure. And what we want to do with this book is say, hey, the ETH is all well, well and good. Uh, but maybe we should start by stripping all of this back and asking some more fundamental and challenging questions before we reach any firm conclusions. You know, let's not just, let's not be in such a damn hurry, uh, slow down. We're only 70 years into this and 70 years barely even registers on a cosmic timescale. Uh, we, we, we don't know enough about ourselves, if, you know, how can we possibly understand something as, as potentially, you know, profound and challenging as, as the UFO phenomenon.
5: Yeah. Very good point. Uh, where do you think that this book um, – well, actually, let me rephrase this. The importance of this book, um, as you've gotten a lot of people that have you know, given you bad reviews on Amazon or have sent you critical emails, do you think that these people are going to work through some of this cognitive dissonance and maybe begin to see that, hey, there might be a lot more to it that maybe we should – Try to um, entertain other ideas, other than people from Zeta Reticuli.
7: That's certainly my hope. Um, yeah. I think some will. I think some will. I think. Uh, I think the say you know say let's let's say a hundred people. So you know, let's say uh, I mean just randomly, say a hundred readers are deeply offended by it. Um, of those hundred readers who are deeply offended, I, I think would be. Maybe looking at a small handful, probably under five, certainly under ten, that who, who would actually then manage to override their cognitive dissonance and um, and take something from the book uh, and actually shift their perspective a little. I think that the majority majority of the hardline believers um, will just feel even more, you know, will, will be even more entrenched into their existing belief uh, system. Uh, whereas, uh, yeah, so I think it would it it would have uh, it would have a an effect on on some of the some of those who would be offended, but I think most of them would are hard to reach. Yeah. You know? But but at the same time, you know, I I speak on this with some experience and empathy because you know, once upon a time, not so very long ago, I would have you know, I think I could have been considered a a hardline you know believer. Sure. Um, and a lot of people, I get it. I I get the mindset. I I really do get it. Um. But, but having come through it myself, <laughs> having let go of it and moved beyond it, I know I know firsthand that it is possible to shake it, um, and that's why I want. Uh, and that's 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 the goal here with this book. I don't want this book just to be read by a handful of snooty Fortean's, you know, who, <laughs> you know, who who are kind of looking at it through their monocle and with a pipe and a leather armchair by a fire in England. going oh, yeah. <laughs> I want, I want this to be read by popular ufology. Otherwise what's the point, you know? Right,
5: right. Sure. I don't want to
7: preach. I don't want to, I don't want to preach to the converted, so to speak. Yeah. Uh,
5: on the other side of that, does, is the non ETH, this alternate way of thinking, is it, do you think that it's gaining ground?
7: Yes, I do. Uh, I think it is. Um, You know, if you look at the way that the debate is shifting or being reframed online, um, I would say that uh, you have um, a a greater number of of commentators, bloggers, um, uh, who are, you know, seeming to be more open to. Uh, to different ideas, uh, I think. I think you're seeing a lot of. I think you're seeing people starting to get really disillusioned with, for example, the classical disclosure movement um, and mindset. You know, Steve Bassett he's a great guy. I have huge, huge admiration for his determination, and uh, you know, and I, uh, you know, I, I know Steve. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've spent time with him anyway, and uh, but. I, I think you know steve is starting to look re- I mean, <laughs> some people would, i mean look he's starting to look really desperate um in his constant you yeah. know pleas for it's going to be any day now it's going to be any day now it's going to be any day now and all we have to do is push 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 i has say this that been course, going
5: on since 2000 maybe even before it that has, yeah
7: yeah it has it has and um y- you know i say this of course well as you and i are having this conversation we are Supposedly, just days away from Tom DeLonge's big reveal, um, and uh, so when yeah. so by the I was going to so ask
5: the, you about that in just a bit, but yeah, go on.
7: So, by, so by the so by the time your by the time this interview is is got has gone online, we may be living in a post-disclosure world, Adam. But my, my guess is
5: <laughs> I detect a sense. little bit of sarcasm in that in that Well, sense.
7: well my position on. <laughs> my position on on tom delong i think you know is that uh, clearly he's in t- he, he is he is actually in you know he's he's not tom delong in my opinion is is being honest he is in touch with these people we know that through let me jump in
5: and say for the audience that you wrote a couple of essays for mysterious universe the about tom delong called the tom delong delusion just to let everybody know yeah
7: mm, that's right and um uh you know, he he clearly he does have these these insider contacts, and they are telling him things. Now, you know, people shouldn't be under any illusions about that. He is in touch with these high level people. Now, the, but the, the you know the question is not whether Tom DeLong is telling the truth, but <laughs> whether the, whether his contacts are telling the truth, whether he's w- right. whether what they're f- whether what they're feeding him has yes you know, has a grain of truth to it, or whether it's just pure um self-serving propagandist psychological warfare bullshit. And if you have any understanding of the history of um uh, psychological warfare as it relates to to UFOs and disinformation campaigns, which are very well documented uh especially in books like um, Mirage Men and Greg Bishop's Project Beta. Right.
5: Richard Doty other, Paul and Paul Binowitz, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah.
7: Um and if you can trace um Quite in quite some detail, the evolution of a self-serving narrative within the UFO community that was seeded by uh, intelligence operatives. Uh, the reasons for the seeding, we may never know, but we can speculate at. Um, but it has to do with, or it would seem to have to do with, seeding and controlling um, belief in uh, small, tight-knit, manageable subcultures and belief systems uh, in order to see how ideas spread within those subcultures uh, and when you can see how ideas spread especially within a belief system uh, you can use that for warfare domestic and foreign um and there's a number of examples of that actually um outlined in in our book uh, jack brewer talks about some and smiles lewis talk about some as well mm-hmm. back in the 50s where um the U.S. military exploited um, uh, foreign folklore in uh, various foreign theaters of war uh, for f- psychological warfare purposes to scare the locals, etc. Um, and so there are all sorts of applications for it. Um, it also may have to do with—I mean, I, I i won't go on and on. I talk about this a lot in the in the two articles, the De- the uh, Delong delusion articles that I wrote, and now you know you can read them online. But but uh suffice to say the Tom DeLonge thing i think we should talk about it here briefly because yeah by the time this is out probably tom delonge will have come out with his big reveal i suspect <laughs> it's going to be related <laughs> to the fact that it's going to that he's going to say something along the lines of and i may be wrong here but he's going to say something along along the lines of he's he's been working with um People like Steven Spielberg, or rather Steven Spielberg and other people within Hollywood elite, have been um, working with the government secret keepers on UFOs in know you know, to make a big TV show or several TV shows or movies or other media platforms, which will tell the truth of UFOs through Hollywood fiction and factual entertainment.
5: I thought they'd already and, been uh, doing yeah. that for. 70 years, right? That's nothing new.
7: (laughs) Well... But I think what he, I think what he may say is that this is yeah. a bit, that this is kind of like an official thing, or, or it won't, you won't have, you you obviously won't get official confirmation ah. of it beyond beyond Tom DeLong, but Tom DeLong is probably going to say something along the lines. I may be totally wrong here, and I, you know, and I'll hold my hands up if I'm wrong. Um, but he may, he's probably going to say something along the lines of Steven Spielberg, and others are making some massive, um, you know, TV show which will serve as acclamation over several years to the to the UFO reality. Um, but what you won't have, of course, is any an actual representative from any official body acknowledging this fact. So what you'll have again is is the subcultures being exploited for God knows what purpose. It won't, you know, people, you need to make the distinction between folk culture, which is ufology, and other similar similar, um, subcultures. This is folk culture, something that exists on the fringes of consensus reality it's never actually accepted as reality and like it or not you know um we get we take our cues for what is real from mainstream official sources you know and that goes for even a lot of the people in subcultures they they get their cues for what is actually real from say cnn or bbc or you know, whatever the, the New York times or, you know, whatever, until it, until something actually appears as a headline in a mainstream format, in a mainstream outlet, rather it still exists within folk culture and therefore is never officially real. Um, even though many people kind of take it to be real, it's never actually officially real until it's on CNN or whatever. Right. Sure. And so, and so, 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 uh, you know, Tom DeLong may come out with some, you know, um, eyebrow-raising uh, statements, information, maybe even documents or whatever. But unless those things, unless his statements, unless some documents or unless some official statement, either in in written form or as a as an actual verbal statement from some government official, actually makes it onto CNN, BBC, etc., New York Times it will remain within the confines of folk culture and therefore it will not constitute what Steve Bassett or Stephen Greer or anyone else deemed to be, you know, disclosure. Right. So, so they, but, but, but the point is, is they will constantly, as Chris Rutkowski says in his essay, they will, they will constantly shift the goalposts for what they deem to be disclosure. So I'll say, oh, well, it's soft disclosure. It's not actually disclosure, but it's, it's, it, it, but it is disclosure in the sense that it's soft disclosure. But, but then, well, if that's the case, if all we can expect is soft disclosure, then then a disclosure movement is a joke because all you're ever going to get is is soft disclosure. Yeah. Um. So so it, it, all you have is just this constant self perpetuating cycle of 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 uh, myth and mythology um, that, that that kind of never really breaks out of the UFO subculture except in the form of pop culture. So. Um, so what, you know, so, so Area, so in my silver screen sources book, for example, I, I use the example of area 51 being the, and Roswell, the Roswell incident as being the perfect examples of ufological hyperreality, hyperreality being the inability of consciousness to distinguish between fact and fantasy. It's the merging of fact and fantasy and the, the kind of the disinclination of the public at large to be able to distinguish between those two they just think well we don't really care about fact and what what is true and what is false anymore um and so we live in that world now we live in this age of hyperreality and I, i use area 51 as a good example because area 51 of course was known first of all within the ufo subculture like of course it was known by it was known, you know, in in in, uh, in official culture to an extent because it was it was covered by George Knapp in the late 1980s, and it was on Las Vegas television and etc. But it, but it really embedded itself immediately into the UFO subculture, and it became the talking point of the UFO subculture for for many many years. Area right. 51, and there was around the late the set, 80s on. Right, and that was around the same time that Roswell really started to 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 enter the debate and to kind of define popular debate around UFOs as well, and and so although these things had had record in in, in official culture, they were they were very much at home in 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 the subculture of ufology and folk culture, and uh, they only broke out of the subculture of ufology through fictional entertainment media. They were Hollywoodized, okay? So Hollywood entertainment, Hollywood. Uh, producers, filmmakers saw the potential, the dramatic potential of these uh, of, of these myths. Not to say that they went true, but they, t- they took on mythic qualities, and they wrote them. They wrote these factual locations, occurrences into fictional fictionalized Hollywood narratives, and they were consumed by the masses, by millions of people. And so, what you had, and the result is, is these real life incidents and places, whatever they actually represent, are pushed into the realm of hyper-reality where they are both where they are simultaneously fact and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been the story of the UFO really since 1947, since Hollywood began to engage with with the UFO subculture and pulled its myths and ideas and started to sew them into Hollywood narratives and popularize them. The anyone who who exists outside of the UFO subculture, which is most people in the world their only knowledge of these supposedly real events and locations and et cetera, et cetera, is through Hollywood entertainment. Uh, and you know, the, another example I use in my first book is where I, you know, I had a conversation. This is what inspired me to write my first book. In fact, was I had a, having a conversation with a friend of mine over a cup of coffee, and I and she, my friend, she she was not interested in UFOs. She didn't know anything about the subject really, you know. Be, beyond what anyone else knows and i said to her i said have you heard of men in black and i was referring to the historical phenomenon of men in black that's documented in you know fbi documentation going back to the 50s and etc and and so i was referring to this actual historical phenomenon have you heard of men in black she replied immediately of course everyone's seen men in black referring of (laughs) course to the will smith the will smith and that just that's 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 the ufo dilemma in a nutshell you know anyone outside of the ufo community only knows about all of this stuff through fictionalized hollywood entertainment and, the, and, and so the, the the lines between fact and fantasy are totally blurred and irreversibly blurred as well
5: i've noticed one thing when i was telling people that i was going to roswell um they said well be careful like if you go to the gate they'll shoot you and I said, what? <laughs> and, and I said, if, they go, if you go to the gate, don't they have the gate with the guards? Like, they sh- they'll Roswell. shoot you. And I said, <laughs> I that's, that's Area 51.
7: Yeah, all well, the same thing. So,
5: like, Area 51 and Roswell have kind of combined, and I think a lot of that is because of movies like Independence Day. Because you had Area 51 in the movie, and there's references to Roswell in the scenes where they're in Area 51. And it's just like you said, it's that hyper-realism. It's, you know, things get combined in people's minds and into people's memories, and it's because of movies. Because movies are a a powerful force in our society
7: massively powerful force and um and especially so well the, the filmmaker the british filmmaker late british filmmaker ken russell said um he said hollywood fills the gaps in our knowledge of the world yeah and i think that's a really profound statement when you think about it and it's especially true of subjects where you know uh, of of kind of subcultural um subjects which fall out of of you know of of official debate like ufos and things because our only knowledge of that you know you can only really get detailed knowledge of something like ufos if you delve into the the specialized literature on the subject you know you have to do some some reading you have to go and find books on the subject do some proper reading not just internet crap but you have to go and you know do your research um but unless you do that your knowledge of ufos will be defined entirely by hollywood entertainment Mm -hmm. essentially Mm-hmm. And 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 this is you know this is something I've said in in, in the past is that is that a film you know I've also interviewed Hollywood filmmakers who have who are themselves UFO buffs and who consider themselves UFO buffs lifelong UFO buffs um, and they've been inspired to make certain films because of their fascination with UFOs and they and, and I've had this from several of these filmmakers they've said oh I made this film because I wanted to educate the public to the realities of of the subject. And I thought, you know what? So, for example, Paul Davids made the Roswell movie in 1994, hugely influential, massively influential uh, TV movie that was seen by millions of people. It was yep. shown on show, Showtime TV, and that, that film really uh, – that, that helped – Drive home the the, the Roswell mythology in, into pop culture and into the UFO subculture, and it crystallized it all in a narrative in narrative form because that's what you, movies do. Of course, they you hit on a key
5: word there, mythology. That's what this stuff has become.
7: Oh, oh God, it was the mythology. The cogs of mythology started to, to turn from you know from almost the day, the day after the Kenneth Arnold sighting. I mean, but but I mean, and, and so. Um. Uh, so these filmmakers, they, yeah, they, 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 people like Paul David who, who've made this film based on a real event in the sense that Roswell was a real event, you know. Um, uh, uh, also, even, you know, the, I interviewed a guy called um, Andy Fickman who's the director of um, the 2009 Disney movie Race to Witch Mountain starring The Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson and stuff. Um, I interviewed uh, I interviewed uh, Fickman and he considers himself life on the he was born and raised in roswell new mexico and he wanted to um oh sorry can you still hear me adam yeah i can hear you i went uh, quite there um he he wanted to make that movie which is like a flying saucer movie for for families a remake of the 1975 uh, film uh, disney film um, escape to which mountain um he, he wanted to make that in part because he wanted to educate the public you know he told me he wanted to educate the public about a subject which he cared about passionately i thought well, you know well that's all great that's really you know I, I appreciate the intent but it surprises me that filmmakers don't seem to recognize the effect of the medium that they wield the, the effect of a fictional a fictional movie of a science fiction an inherently fantastical movie an inherently fantastical genre is to fictionalize its subject matter in the minds of those who you, you don't watch which mountain <laughs> a Disney film rock and think come out of the cinema and think well I've learned something there I've learned all of this historical factual information about you, <laughs> you think you think well, that was you, know, you think totally the opposite <laughs> you think totally the opposite that you know and it, even even with something like Roswell the movie Roswell um, which is much more historically grounded and, and, and less fantastical it's yeah. still it still comes under the banner of science fiction movie and it's going to be labeled as a science fiction movie well, in any genre. Well, how in many any-
5: ridiculous movies do we see that start off with based on a true story?
7: Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so well a lot and and and, 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 and it's been, it's, that's been increasingly the case as well yeah. in recent, in recent years. Um, you know, another, um, another one was the, uh, the film. Oh, oh God, I need to, it's been a while since I've looked at it. 2000 and. Fourteen, I think. Uh, I think it was called Alien Abduction. Um, I may be wrong on that. My God, I really need to do more. You talk about the Fourth Kind? Own. No, not that one. That was two thousand. That was two thousand and nine. Um, but, but Fourth again, Kind kind of had
5: the same kind of thing. Similar, yeah, yeah, similar
7: thing. There's been a whole. There's been a whole bunch of. Um, I know what you're talking about. Alien found- Abduction found footage movie is the trend, you know, to kind of, to right. kind of make it look, to make it look super real and, you know, it's grainy yeah. sort of and based on this and that and the other. And, and they are, and a lot of these films are inspired by aspects of, you know, of, um, of UFO stories. And so there is, I guess, some element of historical truth loosely termed uh, to them. But, but what they do then is they, is they take those basic grains of, of truth uh, or historical occurrences and then they shake them up with a whole bunch of, uh, of you know completely fictionalized imaginings and then throw them out in in the form of a sci-fi horror movie and so unless you really 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 know the history of all of this stuff um from a specialist perspective then you're going to just be completely confused by everything you see like all of the you know all of the grains of truth are just going to be lost with everything else and they did these films they don't serve to acclimate people they just serve to make if anything they serve to 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 make people less inclined to believe that any of this is real because we associate all of this stuff with schlock hollywood fantasy and science
5: (laughs) we're about to add susan in here
7: and so the last thing i'll say quickly here is is so when tom DeLong if 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 and when tom DeLong says something along something along along the lines of steven spielberg is going to acclimate the world to ufo reality through a you know, through an, another kind of Taken-like series, or mm-hmm. through some sci-fi movies. Oh, I
5: forgot about Taken.
7: My, my response was Taken's great, but yeah. you know, but it doesn't. But it doesn't help acclimate people to things. I, again, it, it's a science fiction show, um, and so you know, explore some. It, I mean, it's it's a very it's a very good show. But but the point is, is my response generally is that you if you think that, that Hollywood is, is, is going to help prepare people or is going is to in any way disclose or act as, a, act as a conduit for disclosure, you fundamentally do not understand the effect that Hollywood has in the world. It does not serve to, to actualize things so much as it serves to blur the boundaries and blur the lines between fact and fantasy and push everything into this hyper-real world where everything is neither real or, or unreal um, and so it doesn't so that's not any form of disclosure that i would recognize that's just this process that's been going on right you know for as long as we can recall and not just with ufos but all sorts of topics
5: right i mean they've been saying that for years let's go ahead and take a break here robbie we're gonna add susan in and uh we'll just be back uh buckets paranormal Okay, continuing, Rob, with our second part of the second part of (laughs) the reframing the debate show, Uh, Robbie has uh, agreed to stick around with us, and we, for a little bit, he's going to have to get going here, because he is in the UK, it is super late for him. And as we're recording right now, but we do have one of uh, another one of the essayists from the book, and that is Susan Demeter St. Clair. Susan, welcome to Conspiranormal.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk to you today.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Your essay... Uh, which I was very excited to read. I had heard you on, first time I had heard you was on the Radio Misterioso show. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I think you were on there with a couple of it. I think uh, Smiles, which is um, who we're going to have on later on in the day. But uh, your essay was Making Mountains Out of Mashed Potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. UFOs as a parapsychological event. That also goes into a little bit of uh, filmology there, Robbie, as well. Mm. Uh, (laughs) So this was interesting because this is a subject that I have found imminently fascinating. Um, There is an idea. Well, I'll say this. I'll put it like this. I come from an interesting background with a lot of this stuff because a long time ago I was really into the whole ghost hunting thing. You know, back when Ghost Hunters was on the air, and I was really into it, and I I bought all that stuff. Right, you know, I was so passionate about it, and I would go to um, some paranormal conferences. uh, One big one that the Louisville Ghost Hunters put put on called um, the Mid-South Paranormal Convention. I would go to that a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I would hear all this stuff about poltergeists and ghosts and all this kind of things. And then later on, as I started getting back into the UFO stuff, I would start hearing this from people that were having UFO experiences. Or I would hear it vice versa, someone that had a paranormal poltergeist or ghost experience would then experience a UFO. I had actually a guest on my show that actually talked about that, how they actually had all this paranormal violent haunting experience. And then they saw this UFO and their kind of joke in their book. And their joke on my show with me was, Hey, I just need one phenomenon at, 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 at one time. And my retort to the guy was, I don't know. I think it's all the same thing.
1: It it could be. I mean, it may just be the one phenomenon that is, or, or it could be different phenomena, but the mechanism to experience it is, is the same thing. We really, we really don't know, um, I, I always say that the only thing that we do know is that human beings have been reporting this and experiencing these things since the beginning of recorded history. Yes. So, this is that's the only really tangible thing that we have. Other than that, everything is speculation. But it is, um, and I've noted this as well, because I also did. Uh, uh, my, my fair share of ghost hunting back in the day because I I just love all the Fortiana stuff. I like all the mysteries and and that, although my main focus has always been UFOs, but I, I too have done quite a bit of the ghost hunting stuff. And, and it is amazing how people will have these experiences that sort of, see, they, they dovetail. Either the kind of paranormal stuff is happening during the UFO experience or, these are people that have had maybe ghosts or they, they, they lived in a haunted house and then they, they go on to see a UFO or sometimes it works uh, in other ways or even with cryptids. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's amazing to me how uh, these experiences, they start off maybe with one and for some people, it just then becomes a greater experience uh, and, and within their reality that they go on to experience much more. And I, th- I think that those... Experiences; those that seem the most absurd and strange are probably the key as to what, what may be going on here.
5: Yeah, uh, agreed on that. Um, there, there's very few that cross over between both uh, schools of thought. Um, either you got the UFOs, or you have the um, the the ghost people. I would love to have the people that. Um, study UFOs and the people that study ghosts sit down at a table together and compare notes, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. So there's, there's some out there like John Tinney. I don't know. Are you familiar with John Tinney?
2: Um,
5: he looks at things from a very, it's like, it's like very, um, wide point of view that, you know, that this could be the same thing, but can you talk a little bit about the people that you, um, at the first part of the essay that you helped, uh, the, uh, the family in Ontario, what their experience was.
1: Was this, this was the Aboriginal?
5: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I had mentioned a couple of different case studies in that case, it was, uh, an Aboriginal family, an extended family. And, uh, it was on a native reservation that is here in, um, Southern Ontario. And this was like a yearly sort of a a spiritual powwow um, experience. So a lot of people were coming in, but in in this case, this was a particular family and they had extended family staying with them. And they had been outside um, some of the family members and they were having like a bonfire. uh, When one of them noticed this strange light in the sky and as they all began around this bonfire to, to look up, they heard they heard like voice in their head, like mm. almost like a telepathy, or it was a telepathy, sort of guiding them to look at this, this thing in the sky. And it, it began to descend down upon them. So to me, this, this was very interesting when they first contacted me, that not only was this a multiple witness sighting, and they were describing the same sort of, Thing in the sky, but they were also having this telepathy that sort of um, guided them to to this experience. So, and that that to me often happens. Like when I I um, speak with various UFO experience, there there's something of a synchronicity or a coincidence or something that compels them to look at a space in the sky, and this is where they see the UFO. Um, and that to me denotes something perhaps parapsychological, whether it's telepathy or synchronicity or something of that nature, that is just a little bit more than say, as if it was just a, an object like an airplane flying by that you look up and, and you see. This is something, there seems to be something a little bit more miraculous to the experience. Uh, that often if you speak with the witnesses, you know they, they may tell you, and uh, this is what happened with that family. Uh, also with that particular one the the UFO displayed in such a way that that had a, a symbolism to the family themselves I hmm. can't really get in too much to that because I've sort of um, I'm with on a non-disclosure with them
5: sure. in regards
1: but the symbolism from the UFO was something that came about because I was able to speak to them about what was going on in their personal lives at the time that they had this experience Experience, and I believe it was in 2010. Um, and I find that as well, if, if, if we talk to the witnesses and instead of just focusing on the experience itself, what did the object look like? What was the weather conditions? That sort of nuts and bolts sort of approach, you know, which is fine, but, but talk to the witnesses, find out what's going on with them. What, what, you know, who are they? Who are these people that are having this experience? What's going on in their life? maybe take a greater look at the social context of where they are living, uh, what's going on in in their in the times and, and the uh, community itself at, at, as a large sort of kind of looking at it that way, then other information and data starts coming in. And from that data, we can perhaps start formulating more questions as to what exactly is going on with these, these experiences. And that's something, uh, it, it's just giving a richer perspective to... The whole experience, as opposed to just focusing on what this object might be or what this object might be doing—that sort of thing—which is what the more nuts and bolts ufology has been sort of focusing on. Right. I, I'm I'm sort of advocating for a, a deeper, more complex look, and that involves the tangible, which is the witness, the experience. Yeah. In my yeah. <laughs> sorry for going on and on and on. Oh no I, I no a, no! I'm That's very perfectly passionate. okay. I'm very passionate about my sort of, um, my, uh, my take on how I, I'm, I'm looking at these things.
5: <laughs> well, I'm passionate about it as well, because I think it's the right way to look at it. I mean, when you, for me personally, when you have, uh, these type of experiences, that's one of the key things that helps me to say, how could this be a physical, tangible reality? There's like there's something that's there's something spiritual involved with this. I mean that's to me it just it just became obvious when you had story after story of this of these supposedly mixed phenomenon. It's like we try to take these um phenomenon and put them in little tidy neat little boxes, but it doesn't always work. It, it never works actually.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I think when the case with the, with the UFOs, we saw a lot more of um, a parapsychological sort of um, hypotheses coming out in the 1970s. Uh, but something seemed to change or maybe ufology fell off a cliff more in the 1980s where you start seeing more of the conspiracy theory. But at the same yeah. time, you have these people that tend to they, they want to promote science or even skepticism and they or within the case of the eth they have a very firm set of ideas of what they believe ufos are so anything else okay um that might be a a different interpretation then in their mind becomes sort of crazy or woo woo or ridiculous because you know what why we can't consider ghosts because that's out of the scientific realm therefore this must be these biological beings who are in these, you know little spaceships and they're coming to visit. and uh, anything else is crazy. and i've I've had that before uh, many years. But ago. but they can
5: walk I- through walls. <laughs> and they can speak to us with their minds.
1: Well, exactly. these these beings and um, and and we associate these beings with these spaceships, but even that is is just all speculation. We've really. We really don't know. We don't even know if what we're seeing as a spaceship truly is a spaceship. It's probably, in my opinion, something completely different. Yeah. Um, I, I, and and for whatever reason, we are seeing it in that way. Um, but I I have had that before. I have I have done years ago. I I was on a radio program with somebody, and they found out that I was also not just looking at UFOs, but I was looking at ghosts at the time. And they more or less, you know, uh, equated my ghost work with, uh, oh, you know, you, you're, you're chasing leprechauns and Elvis sightings and this and that. And it's like, whoa, you know, I, I know you're trying to put me down for this ghost thing. But how can you say that, that you believe in extraterrestrials visiting, but then this other <laughs> is, is, too, is too far out for you? Right. So- <laughs>
5: Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> like,
1: I mean, it just, it makes no sense to me. So, I mean, I, I feel that, yes, there is absolutely uh, the beings, the, the humanoids that can be associated with the UFOs. They do things that are very ghostly. They do go through, seemingly go through walls and they, they do do this, you know, they can communicate through telepathy or you know, they do all these very absurd and nonsensical kind of things. So,
7: also Sue, sorry to interrupt. I mean, you, you mentioned oh, in, in, it. in your um, in one of your opening case studies in your essay, or, or at least one of your case studies in your essay. You you talk about the overlap between poltergeist phenomena and UFO sightings.
1: Ah, uh, yes, that was a case that was actually. Um, uh, done by uh, Scott Rogo, who mm-hmm. is a parapsychologist, one of the very few parapsychologists that actually began looking at UFOs. And this was a case of a young couple, and they rented a a cabin in the woods, a, a cottage. And this was in Woodstock, New York. And at the time they they saw very soon after after moving into this this cottage, they saw these lights in the sky. And at one point, the light actually landed on uh, in this nearby adjacent kind of field. And they, they found like what we would call a crop circle or a saucer nest. It wasn't an elaborate crop circle, but a round circle in the ground. But at the same time, shortly thereafter, they started having experiences that would be more uh, some, described like a ghostly or a poltergeist. They began hearing raps in on the walls uh, they heard footsteps, the disembodied footsteps. I believe also um, they saw an apparition on that site. Now, they stayed there, I think, for about three months. They were, they were only going to stay there for a few months anyway. But they, they ended up breaking their lease early and leaving. They were quite terrified. But in the essay that I wrote, I, I did ask, like, is, is this a poltergeist or is this a UFO? Because if you look at it in total, it's actually both. You could describe it as either or, but it's both. And uh, to me, it is a very fascinating and very well-documented case. And this does happen. Uh, Again, this is not as um, unusual as one might think. Uh, But you have to be willing to go out and talk to people. And I have found that when I... When I go and sit down with someone and, and, and talk to them and I let them know that there's no judgment for me and that, you know, I have also had many experiences and you know, you tell me anything you want, then this is when I, they might open up a little bit more and say, Yeah, well, you know what, I did see this object in the sky, but I, I also grew up in a haunted house. Or uh, you know, I, I now live in a haunted house. Uh-huh. Things, things 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 that they know that if they go to an online reporting form or to a certain type of investigator, they're not gonna tell them because they know it sounds crazy or it's not socially acceptable. Um, and and that, that is to me is, is, is maybe a key in finding out what's going on here is that there is that giggle factor, that ridicule factor that a lot of uh, the witnesses do feel that they, they can't share or that it's something that's so absurd or so weird, they don't wanna share it because they feel that they'll be judged Right. And uh and, and, and those are where you find this these, these really high strangeness or these really weird, absurd kind of things that happen that uh, yeah, I, I think are key. key
2: yeah, to exactly. That's what that's what I'm
1: advocating for anyway, is is to really start. Let's let's go back to that that sort of mindset of the nineteen seventies where the, the they, they were looking at these types of things. Certainly Doctor Heinick uh, was, re, you know, collecting these these reports that included all this high strangeness. And that, you later see, was incorporated by Spielberg in the Close Encounters film, which is, of course, where I got the mashed potatoes from.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Heineck, the granddaddy of all ufology. Right, yeah. exactly. Robbie, do you have to get going?
7: Um, I suppose I should, really, I, as much as I'd like to stay. I suppose I, suppose I really should. Um yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you very much, um, for having me on the show. Um, and thanks so much to Sue as well. And, um, uh, yeah, I hope to catch up with you again soon and, uh, uh, yeah. And you can, and so, yeah, you mentioned I should, um, <laughs> yeah. book, which is, yeah, please, uh, <laughs> please. <laughs> uh, yeah. So UFOs reframing the debate. It's, um, it's available through white crow books or it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any good online bookstore. And, um, yeah, I, I you know I just uh, want to thank the, the all of the contributors as well because you know those are the people who actually wrote the book, and uh, you know it wouldn't be what it is without them literally. So uh, I'm you know I'm very just delighted with what they've done, and hopefully it can have some kind of uh, impact uh, over the next several years. Or you know we'll see at least it's at least it's um, generated a little bit of debate. In the short term, and uh, and we'll see where it goes. But again, I, I thank you for uh, for for this opportunity, Adam. Yeah, thank and, you, uh, Robbie. Much see
1: Thank you, Robbie. Thank you for bringing us all together.
5: And we hope Pleasure. to have you on again, Robbie. We do. Okay, thanks so much, Adam. <laughs> all right, sir. You have a good evening. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. okay. All
2: right. Yeah,
5: he had to go. I mean, it's like eleven thirty for him, so. Yeah, but uh, we we can continue the discussion. Sure. Um, yeah, so that brings us to another aspect of this, which is Hollywood. Which mm-hmm. you know we uh, we got into a nice little discussion about Hollywood with Robbie. Uh, yes. Hollywood actually, in many ways, depicts the high strangeness much better than the ufologists do.
1: Yes, it does. Uh, Close Encounters being that seminal film that really uh, people go back to, and and, uh, and I'm so happy that they're re- releasing it for its uh, 40th anniversary. Uh, well, that makes that, me feel
5: that, really old, by the way.
1: <laughs> well, me too. I remember seeing it. I was actually a child then, but I remember seeing it at that time uh, in the theater. And, uh, and yeah, what an amazing film. And it really does. The, the characters um, they go through these these experiences of uh, meaningful coincidences, of synchronicity, right. um, and and having that sort of telepathy, and being compelled, being brought together that way, and being compelled to go to this place, and and of course to do things like building the the, the mountain out of the mashed potatoes. Um, and <laughs> and the high <laughs> the high strangeness really was incredible you know, it was included, and this is what people were experiencing, and they still are experiencing UFOs in those ways. Um, and I, I think that that is important to to kind of discuss, is the idea that, yes, if you look, especially at these older case reports uh, that Hynek was bringing in, people were discussing how they experienced these um, events more from a parapsychological standpoint they were having these uh, amazing experiences and and with uh, the PK the uh, the moving around of objects in the home and that was part of that film where you see the little boy and it was very scary it was really reminded me of the the later on poltergeist film with the little girl
5: right Right. You know where
1: you see where you you see this little girl, and then there's all this strange. The toys are moving of their own kind of volition. Then there's all this strange stuff going on, and the TV is blinking off and on. And you see that, and that is something else that has been reported with UFOs, including um, electrical disturbances. Which, as you know from ghost hunting, that happens with ghosts too. Batteries that drain, cameras that malfunction. All of that is part of the greater UFO experience, much beyond just seeing some object in the sky. Uh, And that is something as well that we see with ghosts. So uh, certainly, um, I I don't know if, if I I don't even pretend to know what what the phenomena really is, but I do see the parallels between both. And I, I think it's foolish to kind of just concentrate only on the one particularly from the UFO standpoint. Like you you know, you, you have to kind of take in the greater, richer experience of these people that are telling you what they're experiencing. If, if if you don't, then you're missing all that great wonderful data that may lead us to better questions as to what is truly going on.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: I, I don't I don't think we'll ever really resolve it. Not in my lifetime anyway. I've kind of but I, I do I, I'm hoping that we'll have better questions moving
5: forward. Yeah, I mean I think that's it. I mean, I I don't really want to resolve it. I I like the mystery.
2: Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But the yeah. see the,
5: the part I remember from that movie is the little monkey with the symbols. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was chilling.
1: It's chilling, you know?
5: Yeah, but um, it's kind of funny too. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, my. And it's funny. It's funny, but it's, it's scary because it's, you know, when these little mundane things happen, I mean, that's like, that's true horror, you know, um, it is, is these little things that seem normal. And then they, they do something right. that's absolutely not normal. Right. Like it's like that. You know, it's it's like, you know, a, a child laughing during the day is, is, is sweet and cute. But you hear a child laughing at 3 a.m., where there should be no children, Ugh. then that becomes that becomes creepy and eerie, doesn't it? Does yeah. that
5: ever happen to you?
1: Um, not to me personally, but I have interviewed because I have done also the ghost hunting thing. I've interviewed yeah. people that have had that sort of experience where they have have experienced things that are just out of place, like that, like a, like a child laughing in the middle of the night where where there should be no child, and that is chilling. That's scary.
5: Or a baby crying in the woods or something like that. Yes. Yes. That's creepy.
1: That is creepy. Especially if you go looking and you just, there's no baby.
5: Yeah. Of course, some some animals can make those noises too, but that's uh, not a a kid laughing, but.
1: Yeah, no, no. But I as much as people mistake things, uh, including, like, UFOs, like, uh, obviously, there, there is something to be said about examining things and trying to debunk or remove possible mundane explanations. But I think for the most part, people, especially when it comes to UFOs, um, they, they know when they're seeing something strange or weird. Um, I, I, that's what I find anyway. I mean, most people now know what a, a, an airplane looks like. Right. Or even with the uh, the Chinese lanterns that were the sky lanterns. They were so popular. And we were getting a lot of reports at one point of those. Um, and now not so much. And I think it's because people have gotten used to what they look like. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so a good I think point. I have to, yeah. You have to give kind of the witnesses some credit, too, for, you know, that, that, that they're describing exactly what they experienced.
5: Why do you think that... Um the UFO, UFO, ufology doesn't want to deal with the high strangeness um, accounts?
1: Um, I think because a just a straight-up nuts-and-bolts approach really doesn't take into account the witness, and maybe it's not equipped to deal with the, these grander questions or these greater questions. And then in some cases, it's because it's so strange and it's so different to what they may feel is going on that they would rather just ignore that part because it's, it's almost as if I think uh, they want to kind of give a, a sort of respectability or, you know, this is a scientific thing that, that we're doing. uh, So we're going to reject all this stuff. And, and, and I've seen it, I've seen it online where people have you know, gone into UFO forums and they start saying, well, you know, I had this experience and, and they might describe something that's a little strange and they get shut down. Like, you know, like they're, uh, well, you're a crazy person kind of thing. <laughs> or, they, or people assume they're a troll or something. I don't know. But um, but people do get shut down. And then there are other people that just, they, they know. Like I have talked to witnesses before that, you know, they say, they preface all the time with, I know this, sounds crazy and, mm-hmm. and and in my mind I'm thinking well you just told me you saw a UFO that's <laughs> yeah You come on give me the rest of it and um, and but they know they, they, they know that if they say they go beyond a certain point that they it that it does sound very mad or strange and they're afraid of being judged so they hold back these things and yeah. that may be a mechanism to the phenomena itself I've explored that idea that perhaps it is a phenomena that really does not wish true discovery. So it keeps the absurdity level high so that you know we're we're never really questioning these things or we're losing large amounts of data. And certainly the general mainstream population, they don't take any of this seriously when they even consider it, you know. There's all sorts of uh, notions about the types of people that see UFOs or or even experience ghosts, and they're completely incorrect, because this is across the board. This any anyone like there's witnesses can be any type of person, like from all sorts of educational backgrounds to socioeconomic circumstances, cultural. um, This is this is a human sort of experience, um, and I'm worried that when we do sort of say, okay, this is socially acceptable to see uh, an alien spaceship or describe it that way, because especially with pop culture now, People, people just assume we're not alone in the universe. You know, I, I think Star Trek helped to introduce that idea. So, and people, people want that. People, people don't want us to be alone. They want this to be this grander universe. So that's more socially acceptable than say, the person who has this experience, but they're also seeing, uh, as opposed to the typical gray, they're describing a little dwarf character or something else that, that's doing something really absurd. I, you you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. some of it is socially acceptable within the within the UFO larger community, and some of it is absolutely not. And
5: if, if it's a gray or a reptilian, it's okay. But if it's like a a little dwarf for the Flatwoods monster or something, then it's kind of weird.
1: Exactly. <laughs> um, and and that that to me, I I, I you know I, I reject that. I, I think that if you're yeah. going to go in then dive right into the deep end and let's let's examine all of this. That is what John Keel did, and he certainly knew this material better than anyone else. Um, it, it is absurd, and there is a whole depth and richness of, of very strange things that go along with it, uh, and for a lot of these witnesses. They, it's not just uh, a one-off experience, but it becomes a lifetime worth of experiences or they'll have one major thing as an adult and then you find out later well as a child they had also they they might have had a strange imaginary friend or mm-hmm, they had mm-hmm. other experiences or grew up in a haunted house that sort of thing
5: right yeah, yeah. there's there's a guy that uh, bill bean um who I've actually met um uh, he goes around the ghost um conference paranormal conference circuits
2: mm-hmm.
5: and he talks we had him on the show way back like it was like episode 13 or something, but he talked about growing up in a haunted house. And there's actually an episode of a haunting that's made about his experiences. And so he has these experiences growing up in a haunted house, uh, particularly violent haunting, um, getting away from it. And then later on in life, all of a sudden he's calling down UFOs from the sky. Yeah. 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 So it's like, and for him, he sees it all as the same thing. Now, he's yeah. a Christian, and so he sees it all, you know, I think in a, it, it, it's all demonic, that kind of thing. But yeah. he still sees it as the same phenomenon. There's not, n- not everything is in a tidy, neat little box. Yes.
1: it's It's probably more one giant, big box of cosmic... Weirdness and stuff.
5: <laughs> what's the what's possibly the weirdest report that you've had um, come to you? Like the 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 weirdest high strangeness report.
1: Oh wow! Um, there, Putting you been, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, there's there's been so many um, that are are just really strange. Um, uh yeah, you're kind of you've kind of put me on the spot because I'm just trying to 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 pick out one that that might really stand out. Uh, And I did did discuss the ones already with you um, from the essay. There was another one involving a a woman who had experiences uh, with Lake Ontario and seeing multiple UFOs over a two night period. Prior to that in her life, she had seen uh, these dwarf or fairy-like creatures that were driving cars uh, and along a hydro line, uh, which I found very interesting because it's almost as if the, the these little fairy creatures driving cars graduated up to something larger, flying spaceships. And then she also went on to have UFO experiences later on in life as, as a more mature adult. Um, I'm just trying to think of one. I, I've I've come across many. Like there, there was one with a talking dog. Uh, there was a, there was yes, a talking dog. Okay, you there
5: can't was, let that just pass. <laughs> <yeah. laughs>
1: well, There's that one. Um, where, and there was another with. Um, well, this is one that was strange. Uh, involved a, a, a monkey that sort of let out a sonic screech, and that th- that one was. Not far from here in southern Ontario, in an uh, area known as Caesarea. And this involved a couple of witnesses, and they were, um, I think they were teenagers at the time. And they had seen uh, what appeared to be like a large, classic sort of saucer shape, disc shape uh, UFO. And they had entered into this wooded area because at the time, this area was that I'm talking about was rather rural. So they were surrounded by a lot of forest and that, and they went out looking for this thing and they came across what appeared to be, they describe it almost as like an albino or like a white sort of chimpanzee type character. And it was in the woods. (laughs) And when they tried to approach it, it started screeching in a way that they, they described was, was really frightening terrifying and they rode off away from this thing uh quite frightened and they told their parents about it at the time now this this one person who actually became a a good friend of mine and he has gone on to have as well ghostly experiences later on in life uh and another ufo experience but the monkey-like creature that was seen in an area which is very close to um, a spooklight location, where people have been seeing spooklights for for generations. Uh, it's also uh, an area of apparitions and and other UFOs, and even a cryptid uh, is in that neck of the woods. So it's it's an area that's kind of rich in folklore, mythology, experiences, and and this strange monkey-like creature that seemed to somehow be associated with this this flying saucer so that is a is is a really weird one um but i have had quite a few that that were that were strange uh another one involved a woman who uh, was having poltergeist experiences in her house uh, including an apparition and then uh, at the same time saw several UFOs that were over this escarpment that she had, where her house had been overlooking. Um, she actually called the police with her husband, who also saw these uh, these things in the sky. And the police more or less said, well, there's nothing we can really do. And they told the, the fellow, you know, tell your wife not to look in the sky anymore, which was terrible, <laughs> but...
2: Hmm.
1: Um, so, I've I've investigated quite a few of these where there seems to be some really strange stuff. And, and yes, there was one person that I did speak to that felt that they had this UFO experience that involved a dog that began talking to them. And they felt that the dog was not a dog, but was a an alien being. And this, this being was imparting information to them.
5: It's like Jeff the Talking Mongoose.
1: Similar to that, yes. <laughs> yes. And of course, well, you know, we dogs and, and, and mongooses, they don't have the physiology to to speak. So this, we can speculate then, what what was this? Is this a possession? Is this something else? Uh, you know, from a, from a paranormal standpoint, it could be a few different things that, that could create this situation. But again, in, in these two cases, they were associated with a ufo you know yeah and they certainly weren't an alien right (laughs) or an alien as far as like we we classically might depict one like a a whitney streber gray alien no this was in this case one was a monkey and the other was a as a dog a talking dog a talking dog rob what would
5: you do if your dog started
6: talking (laughs) <laughs> it might not be the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me so I don't know.
5: <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say about the monkey? I'm sorry.
1: Oh, the the monkey was more of a scream like like it was a sonic he described it as like a, a sonic kind of a sound. It was like really really low sort of horrific kind of screech thing that that just it hurt them to hear it. It was it was terrifying. That's, they, that's
5: horrifying. That's just
1: <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, and and it's uh, as I had said in that case, the the person who had this experience became a very good friend of mine, and just knowing this person, I I, I just I have no doubt that this is exactly he's describing exactly as he experienced it. Um, very very eerie and creepy, um, and again, and it's from a it's from an area where a lot of this kind of stuff is reported so uh, who knows it may have been related to the disc in the sky that they saw this was with his brother or it may be something else it might have been a cryptid or something i i don't really know but it seems that it, it somehow was they were drawn out because of into the woods to see this thing as a result of seeing uh a ufo Wow.
5: Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. So there you go, cryptid and UFO and poltergeist encounter all together. Yeah. There's also this idea that you that you talk about in your essay about um, social social psi. That like yeah. as a group we can manifest these things.
1: I believe that that's a, a possibility. I don't. I I think that it could be consciously done, like an elective type of an experience. um, And that would be perhaps more in line with um, magic or uh, performing sort of a magical sort of an act. And I also believe that it could potentially be uh, part of a a greater social experience where people may be not aware of what's going on I had worked on a book with Dr. Eric Ouellette uh, called Illuminations, uh, The UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event uh, in 2014. And one of the cases that we examined using parapsychological lenses uh, was the Belgium wave and the concurrent uh, wave in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s and early 1990s. When you look at these two UFO waves, which were very, very well documented at the time, uh, in in a really rare case of cooperation, you had ufologists with uh, SOBEPS uh, working with local police, cooperating with the Belgian Air Force. And you had these huge numbers of people that were having these experiences with UFOs, Uh, and humanoids and other strange things going on over a sustained period. And most of it seemed to be occurring in Belgium. And as well, you had these things happening in the Soviet Union. Again, many, many UFOs and crazy humanoid creatures and poltergeist-like stuff associated with that as well. But the one thing that people seem to not look at, at, at least at the time, is what was going on in Europe, what was happening in Belgium at the time, what was happening in the Soviet Union. If you look at that time frame when this U- these UFOs seem to literally erupt in the sky over NATO headquarters, you at the same time had the Soviet Union in collapse. You had several different countries' population, probably in a state of, of, of extreme anxiety and stress, not knowing what's going on, uh, certainly in the former Eastern Bloc countries, that so all of a sudden you had the, the Berlin Wall was was taken down. Um, Eric and I, uh, Dr. Willett and I, uh, we speculated that maybe this helped to create the UFO situation because what you ended up hap- having happen was a series of UFOs right over a military installation, almost as a as a cry of help or or look at me, we're here over NATO headquarters at a time where you had millions of people terrified about maybe what's going to happen next because the entire soviet structure was falling apart and and it's even it's it's incredible to me that people don't even really uh, take the time to look and see that yes there were two major UFO waves happening in these different parts of Europe concurrently and they were both Again, uh, even the ones in the Soviet Union at the time, there were Soviet researchers that were documenting this. Uh, Jacques Vallée had gone out there. He wrote an entire book on it, on the Soviet experience in 1989. And yes, it, it, if you take a look, if you take the time to look and see what was happening in the larger scale as, as far as um, the social and political uh, arena at the time, where these UFOs were occurring was very, very volatile. So we did, we looked at that. We also looked at um, the Canadian wave uh, 1967. Uh, there was uh, a lot going on there in Canada as well. But I think with the Belgian and the, um, the Soviet waves, you can kind of clearly see that, that if you look at the greater social context, people were having a lot of anxiety at the time. And perhaps they were looking towards something else, something outside of themselves that could come to their rescue, more or less, or could maybe resolve the situation. And what we ended up having happening was a bunch of UFOs that occurred literally over military installation and NATO headquarters. So I think that you, you can't really say for certain that's what happened. But if you apply a parapsychological lens, thinking that just like with the poltergeist, we assume that These are people that that may be having social anxiety or anxiety or personal issues and they can't fully express it properly to the outside world. So what ends up happening is that through Psy, they create all sorts of poltergeist-like stuff. And it's not until the issues are resolved that the poltergeist tends to dissipate or go away. And it's the same kind of thing if you apply it In a broader scale to UFOs, that maybe this social anxiety created such a situation where all of a sudden you have all these UFOs in the sky and that they are not necessarily spaceships, but they're more apparitions or they might be symbolic and they're appearing again, uh, you know, over a place where, you know, maybe these people were calling out for help. Who knows? Because I I personally, I know if I, I feel that if I was living in the Soviet Union with that history at the time, as things were completely falling apart, I'd be nervous too. Um, It it was a very strange time period for people. And you had millions and millions of people that were affected. And then you had these massive UFO waves.
5: Well, it's interesting (laughs) because if you look at uh, something like last year during this whole, like, traumatic election that we had down here. Yes. We had all these uh, clowns showing up everywhere.
1: Yes.
6: And I think there's a connection. It's never going to go away, is it? It's never going to go away. I
1: I actually, I mentioned that um, at the time that I thought it was very interesting because the same Mm -hmm. sort of situation they had this in the 1930s, I think it was uh, the Mad Gasser, and it was this strange uh person that to appear and gassing people um and there was all this widespread social panic and i noted that with the clowns too as you know this whole thing was going on with the elections in this in, in the states these clowns start appearing and, and they became a little bit international as well they popped up in in the uk and i do believe people were experiencing them
5: did you get any in canada
1: um, I didn't hear of any in Canada, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there there had been some. It was it was really really strange. It was kind of it reminded me a lot of that whole Spring Heeled Jack uh, from the uh, Victorian times in England, this strange being that just showed up. Um, and and maybe some of them are hoaxes too. I know with the clowns, maybe maybe it started off with some trickster like person starting something on the internet. But I do believe that. That they were also actually experienced by people, and it was very, very, very strange but i I, I think that you could be onto something too with that in the UFOs yeah. Yeah. yeah
5: Times of social stress yeah I mean I think it just it becomes okay maybe maybe that maybe we don't believe in UFOs as much anymore or this or just the broader popular culture isn't doesn't it's not in the popular culture, but for some reason clowns are. Yes, and it just becomes that way. Uh, before, I, I oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, and and then if you look at the symbolism of them as well, you know, the clown being a trickster like figure, right? Um, so sometimes I think too with the UFOs, just um, I used to think with the jellies, like the when in the nineteen early nineties when you start seeing the jellyfish UFOs, and they're more like a biological sort of thing. People were describing jellyfish in the sky. I thought, you know, maybe that's dovetailing with people's concerns over the environment and our oceans. All of a sudden, the UFOs have morphed now and they're like jellyfish in the sky. So, I mean, these are just, I I don't know. I don't even pretend to know what is truly behind the phenomena. But these are interesting things that we can kind of, when we get outside of the mainstream sort of, it's either nothing or the ETH then we can start exploring these ideas, which I think are really fascinating. Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you real quick, um, and this might be something that we could get into, do a whole show on, but uh, I really love your take on, well, it's kind of like your take on the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis where you talk about the dead people hypothesis in, in, yes. uh, in reference to ghosts?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, the dead people hypothesis. That's, that's the, the same side of the, the coin as with the ETH. It's, it's the popular uh, idea behind ghosts. And, and, and it may be true. I don't know. But um, I, I think that once we move past the DPH we can maybe start exploring ghosts and, and, again, coming up with better ideas or better questions as to what truly is going on there. And, uh, and, and I'd be happy to come back and discuss the DPH with you, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, I did a whole analysis of the, uh, the Morton case, which is the woman in black in Chantelham, England. And, uh, again, taking the, the, the route of, of parapsychology and looking at the witness— And then putting her in her social context, some interesting things emerged for me from that, as opposed to just thinking it's a a woman in black widow who's haunting a certain location. Um, I came up with some some interesting stuff.
5: Interesting. I think we will leave that there, Susan, because I think we want to mine that for for it get you back on
1: <laughs> absolutely i've enjoyed being uh talking to you and, and thank you for having me yeah
5: and where can people contact you and what's next for you
1: um I is have there a book
5: a, coming out of you do you have any books that are out
1: i don't have a book that's out other well robbie's um is is the current one and i don't know do you want me to to sort of plug that again as yeah well? sure yeah UFOs reframing the debate, which I have the essay in, and and I really I love all the essays, um, even if I don't agree with all of them <laughs> necessarily. I think that's the beauty of the, the the whole book is that we're we're coming from all sorts of different kind of perspectives. But uh, my my current research interests and my work and the book that I am working on, which is uh, going to be UFOs, magic and synchronicity, or that's basic kind of working title about some projects and experiments I'm doing. Uh, if people want to read about that, they can contact me at my website, which is susanstclair, um, all sort of one lowercase.com.
5: All right. Excellent, Susan. Thank you so much. And uh, stay in the line for us. And uh, guys, we're going to close out this section. Uh, a mythical creature just walked in. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> But we'll be right, we'll be right back on Conspirator Normal.
6: Rob. Yes, Adam.
5: Something momentous has happened. <laughs> what would that be? We, ha- we have a visitor in the studio, someone that has not been here.
6: But many of you have heard of him
5: yes there may be some that just have no idea who he is children that that uh that started listening to conspiracy Normal around 140 or so maybe they probably have no idea who this person is some don't know but he is here
4: you see i i really hate when you play me up like that because i have really nothing to contribute so don't to to the audience don't get your hopes up okay <laughs>
5: well we have our mascot our our own alfred e newman luke so good to see you i'll
4: be here to make asinine comments whenever necessary
5: okay Uh, very very good Uh, you 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 are you are good for that (laughs) and for the music and uh, hopefully you're working on a punk rock song for us
4: yeah well hopefully the punk rock song won't suck (laughs) <laughs> because, uh, yeah, all the rest of it has. <laughs> no.
5: well, well, doesn't punk rock suck? Does, is, it, is it supposed to suck? If, it's, if it doesn't suck, it's not punk. It's got
4: to be the right kind of suck. <laughs> kind, kind, of like, kind of like... Suck a, is a whole spectrum, it. <laughs> so. Right. Kind of like if like a, du- a dude isn't, is not mean to his girlfriend, if he's mean in the right way, like it could be sexy. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, uh, Resume. I'm, I'm just
5: going to let that go. Uh, third part of the second part of... UFOs reframing the debate. I think I said that right. Uh, we have, for the next hour, Red Pill Junkie. Hello. Hello, sir. I just, uh, it, it wasn't that long ago that I was on Where Did the Road Go With You, not, not too long ago. Hey, that's right. Um, and a first-time guest to the show, Smiles Lewis, who is also a contributor to the book smiles. Welcome to Conspiranormal. normal. Howdy. Thank you for having me and red pill. Welcome back.
8: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me back.
5: Uh, I want to get into you guys, um, essays and then just whatever, you know, kind of comes out from there. Um, red pill. Your essay is almost like the linchpin of this book, man. (laughs) I mean, it's, it, it, it has pictures so I think that uh, some people would actually enjoy it because it actually has pictures. But uh, it is called Anarchy in the UFO, with a big exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to explore this concept with you, bud. And uh, Smiles, feel free to you know chime in whenever you want to as well on this. Um, All right. But uh, this is a very interesting concept about equating UFOs to anarchy. And of course there's another essay in the book, MJ Benias talking about UFOs and capitalism. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like that dichotomy that Robbie was talking about in the first part of this show uh that is, that is very much a part of this uh of this essay. But I mean first of all, um Red Pill, how did you feel about this book and smiles, you know, as well. How did you guys feel about, you know, being contributors to this to this book?
8: Well, I think it's uh, it's an honor you know to be uh, uh, in league with uh, so many people that I've been fans of for so many years uh, that I consider to be you know at the forefront of uh, to me the most interesting discourse about uh, ufology so when Robbie Graham, reached reached out to me i think uh, i guess in 2000 uh, end of 2015 maybe or something like that and and he asked me if i was interested in my first reaction was oh, oh no no way thanks because i didn't think what what the hell could i you know just add to the discussion you know something that could be really unique about it but then i said well maybe maybe i can find something uh of the of the things that I have uh, given a lot of thought whenever I, I, I'm thinking about the uh, about UFOs we started to coalesce into this uh, essay uh, Anarchy in the UFO, which was not about trying to give uh, an ultimate answer about the mystery of, of ufology i I don't think anyone who contributed to this book, uh, even attempted to do that. And I think all of us uh, were honest enough to acknowledge that we don't have any, gut, any clue whatsoever about what UFOs really are, their, their origin, their nature, their intentions, what we're trying to uh, say in this uh, in this book, I think it's kind of kind of encapsulated in the title itself, you know, and something that also I also try to portray even in the cover, you know, because Robbie also uh, asked asked me if I was interested in designing the cover for the book, and I mm-hmm. and, and I was, and I put a lot of into what I think about the UFO problem into the into the cover, you know, because I feel there's a lot of A lot of people, there's a lot of voices who are trying very hard to categorize the UFO phenomenon into these neat uh, labels, titles, you know. And so some people UFOs are equals aliens, other UFOs equals extraterrestrials, other they, they think of fairies, other they think they're hoaxes or propaganda. Uh, misinformation, whatever. What? Well, I think that what the people in the in the in the book are trying to say is, you know, let's let's retrace our steps. You know, let's kind of like start from the beginning, and acknowledge that you know, UFOs are still an enigma that is uh, confounding humanity, and you know maybe. Trying to fit this big-ass round peg into our squares, uh, <laughs> holes of categories, is not the right approach. And, well, getting back to my, to my essay, uh, what I wanted to, to talk about is what I think, what to me is the, the, some of the things that hint at the behavior of, of, of the phenomenon. And it's that it's a very tricksterish behavior, you know, yep. very something that is very against the norms, against the conventions of the status quo, and also, and very importantly, against our expectations at expectations at how the phenomenon should behave, because the phenomenon is always like, uh, like staying like two steps ahead of us. Like, for example, in the 1940s or, or beginning of the 1950s, uh, when the phenomenon had already been like, established or people were paying attention of it and it was still big news in the press, there were these groups who were saying, okay, well, yeah, there, there's clearly there's something that people are seeing in the skies, but no way they can be seen you know, close to the ground. And you know, at at the beginning of the 1950s, we started to have the first uh, uh, reports of landed UFOs. And then ufologists say, "Okay, okay, so maybe there are times when the UFOs may land on the ground, but there is no way in which the UFO occupants." Will be out of the, <laughs> the craft, and then you start to have you know, uh-huh. the first tales of the UFO occupants seen out of the craft, apparently performing some kind of like gathering of samples, you know, like plants or soil material, or whatever, and seen by 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 the witnesses, and after apparently seeing that they will be being observed, you know, getting back to their to their craft, and then the ufologists say, well, well, well okay. So the occupants may leave their craft, but there's no way there will be any interaction with humans. And then this is when we start having the, the, the third close encounters or, or, or even the abduction cases. So my point is the phenomenon is always kind of like flipping the berth out of our preconceptions of what the phenomenon is supposed to behave. That to me is very anarchical in nature. And I... Was ma- the purpose of my essay was trying to see whether that anarchy is just because of the, the 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 alien nature of the phenomena, or maybe it has some kind of underlying purpose of trying to shape uh, or influence the culture. In a very subversive, in a very uh, underground kind of way,
5: something to do with us mm-hmm. instead of the other, or how the mm-hmm. other interacts with us.
8: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Um, so th- this kind of as uh, you describe in the essay, UFOs are a real challenge to like scientific rationalism.
8: Yeah, I mean, uh, I cite. Uh, Terence McKenna. In my, in my essay, there is a there's a YouTube clip in which Terence is speaking in some UFO conference. I think it was in San Francisco. Maybe it was in 1987. 87. I'm not sure. I know that Whitley Strieber was there because he mentioned mentions him. I also know that Jack Vallee was also there because he also mentions him in his presentation. But it was. Uh, to me, was great because it, it was like uh, Terence McKenna saying that to him, the UFO phenomenon was not was signs of an impending invasion or uh, evidence of some kind of like interplanetary scientist uh, conducting some kind of like scientific survey on our planet. To him, uh, the UFO phenomenon was at the forefront, some kind of like affront to the. Af- Authority of uh, materialist uh, empirical science—the the, the same type of empirical science which had been uh, so at, at odds with religion, and apparently had won the battle against religion and had become the new religion of our of our of our civilization—the one that managed to. You know, to beat the, NAS- the Nazis, you know, using the the uh, you know the creation of uh, of so many uh, this uh, groundbreaking and maverick new scientific discoveries, and also at the end of the Second World War with the, with the blast of the first atomic wars, atomic weapons. But at the same time, is the same science that has <clears throat> created such havoc. Yeah. In our e- ecosystem that we are now uh, literally, you know, I, I don't think anyone will dispute that, at the brink of total, you know, uh, collapse, of total, uh, you know, uh, biological, uh, uh, ecological collapse. And it's kind of like the UFOs is kind of like, uh, and, and Terrence kind of like equated equated it to uh a sign of, of the way that nature used to be revered in ancient times. It was it used to be revered as the goddess, you know, Mother Gaia. So, and this is something kind of like <clears throat> also links with Smiles' uh, own essay
2: mm-hmm.
8: in, in the book how if you want to see uh, materialistic science. As something very, uh, very male dominant, then the UFO phenomenon, in a way, is is tricksterish, like I said, but it's also kind of like a very feminine. You know, it's very coy, it's very subtle, very you know, not in your face or oblique, in the way that that, that it shows you, it shows uh, its its power. And Marquena said, you know, I think this is a way of the goddess or the mother Gaia to try to show the limits to the power of male-dominant science.
5: Hmm. Right on. (laughs)
8: Yeah.
5: (laughs) Uh, What's your uh, response to some of that, Smiles? Oh, man.
3: I, you know, I whether you call it a linchpin or a a pivot point or just another awesome contribution to the book, um, RPJ's essay really said so much of the stuff that I was hoping would be in this book, whether said by me or somebody else, because uh, I too am a uh, uh, admirer and devotee of, of Terrence McKenna's uh, ideas and works um and it, it, he being a great example of uh, of uh, the the nature of the phenomenon itself he was a trickster he and he, who navigated um, like the trickster and like the uh the shamans of old um, navigated all these paradigms of possible reality that the ufo phenomena seems to intimate and as uh, rpj mentions you know the Nobody in the book is like necessarily uh, in their essay putting forth this is what I think the UFO phenomenon is. You may get a, a taste or a flavor of their ideas about the true nature of the phenomenon and, and whether it represents a non-human intelligence of some sort, uh, whether it be from you know classic extraterrestrials or interdimensionals or collective unconscious or whatever. But um, we we all feel that there's something important there. And even the most hardened skeptics in the lineup of contributors, you know, believe that there's import in what, um, especially what R P J is focused on, is the effect of the phenomenon, not necessarily what is the phenomena, but what is its effect. You know, that's the one thing that we can uh, observe and and maybe use in a scientific, predictive way that isn't like getting the object or the mechanism into a lab and kicking the tires and and running tests and figuring out how this thing ticks and works and what have you, but at the same time, I think we we've got a lot of information uh, about the nature of the phenomena to to give us some really good, well grounded speculative hypotheses. And and McKenna was one who would just rattle them off, and they'd often be contradictory. <laughs> and he <laughs> you know, he could convince you that any one of those was the truth, but uh, you know he'd switch tracks and change change his mind and tell you something else. And um, science fiction writers um, like Strieber and like Philip K. Dick. Uh, are also uh, exemplars of this ability to navigate the strange possibilities inherent in interacting with this phenomenon. And whether it's just the intricacies of the human psyche and its seeming psychic abilities um, grappling with the unknowable aspects of the universe and its mechanisms, or, and, and, or, you know, and there's no, it's the excluded middle, maybe it's both and, uh, it's also uh a mechanism for communication with those other entities um so I, I i think this book when when I was approached uh i I'd already heard about some of the approached uh writers, both some that didn't end up in in the final cut and and those that did and I was um equally just like, oh my gosh, uh this is an incredible opportunity I've got to rise to the occasion here and contribute something that I hope will be significant. And unfortunately, I did not get to write the thing that I wanted to write and ended up adapting uh, to lectures that I've given over the last several years. But f- refining the focus to um, uh, two aspects of this that I do feel that are of import and to, to people to understand this. And one of them is about the effects. What if you know there are groups of humans, whether corporate, military, or political – Or esoteric who have through observation and experimentation figured out some of the mechanisms and can manipulate uh the phenomena or their own version of thereof for in political ends and and valet and and mckenna are great um, uh balancing um aspects of these ideas one being you know the both have suggested a gaian uh source as a possible explanation um but both have also you know said it, it may not it may be something as natural as the weather that's been with us as long as we've been on this planet and um, that swings this like like valais cultural thermostat sends uh, our cultures and our religions and our institutions uh back and forth along a spectrum of belief that ranges from total superstitious dark ages uh kind of thing that you know valet feared that you know the the if belief went rampant uh with these phenomena that the worst kinds of things could occur including you know race war and ethnic cleansing and uh cult uh mass suicides uh and you know all these things that we've seen uh sometimes often connect the ufos and um but that that they also represent possibly like the steam valve for uh, tent, psychic psychosocial tensions in the civilizations that they're um, occurring to. And that maybe it's maybe these steam valves are sometimes engineered by the humans who have uh, figured this out. Now, uh, again, McKenna, a great foil to that is like, no, 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 no. There's no conspiracy like that. And things are too complicated for that to be the case. And I like both of them. I think sometimes I look at it and I see conspiracy and other times I'm like, no, I think it's just a weird natural phenomenon that's interacting with us. And we've built these amazing hall of mirrors, mansion mythologies. Right. About
6: we've
5: put but, things in boxes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And there's just so much in there's so much rich uh, stuff in in um, RPJ's uh, essay about the anarchy and the UFO, and um, he goes into some directions I was not expecting anybody in the book to go into, <laughs> uh, beyond the things that I like. I say was was hoping somebody in there would say, um, whether it be mentioning Robert Anton Wilson, <laughs> possibly saying hey, Aras" in response to being at that uh, 1987 uh shamanic approaches to the u f o uh, lecture from the angels and archetypes conference that uh uh he was citing that McKenna talks about you know the and there's been, been this antipathy between McKenna and Strieber at least there was at a time like when they would appear at these conferences and McKenna would sometimes chide his audiences like, Well, what I'm talking about is not what that guy's talking about and It's like, well, actually,
8: <laughs> guess what <laughs> maybe it is. Yeah, and, and you, ever the librarian, Miles, you were the one who managed to remember the name of that conference. Well, <laughs> I, yeah,
3: well, when I read it, when I read your essay, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, my God. And and um, I've been for the last year processing Strieber and Jeffrey Kripal's new uh, book that they co-authored together, The Supernatural, two words, Supernatural. And uh, it's another great modern uh, reassessment. And in it... Creipel. At some point, I was just reading today. I've been really taking my time with this book, and um, and like like UFOs reframing the debate. It's one that you can reread over and over again. Um, but uh, Kripel was talking about the shamanistic aspects of this, and this is something that you know. I was thinking, also, well, when was the earliest? And he was like, oh, John Mack talked about this in 1994, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was before then. And I started looking back, uh, and so I was I, I was recently re. Uh, familiarizing my memory with with the fact that yes, and plus that that conference uh, was just that angels and aliens and archetypes and uh, uh, revision magazine had done a spread on that which I've got in the archives.
5: So, Robert Anton Wilson actually did yell out "Hell Eris at that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no.
8: It don't was, was a, a, something that I imagined he would have okay, done. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah,
3: yeah. 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 <laughs> but remember, he was. Uh, uh, Um, Wilson was in contact with, apparently, both Philip K. Dick and Jacques Vallée during that period of time.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Actually, earlier, I think.
5: I've got a couple of paragraphs uh, from yours, Red Pill, and I've actually got something that, uh, and a couple of uh, sections from yours to read, Smiles. Uh, So the first one that I want to read from yours, Red Pill, Mm. is where you talk about, uh, well, you've got a nice little picture of the smiling man down here. But, uh, for there are cases which even the people open to the possibility of an alien presence in our world find deeply unsettling. The attacks suffered by the victims of Spring Hill Jack in the 19th century, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon of the 1930s, the panicked teenagers pursued by Mothman in the 1960s, and even the odd encounter that Woodrow Derenberger had with an enigmatic individual who identified himself with the nonsensical name of Indrid Cold, an innocuous human-looking being, unable, unable to assuage Derenberger's understandable fear despite flashing him a large smile. Here we find yet another powerful right brain symbol in the form of the grinning man archetype. Which made its first literary appearance of Victor Hugo's *The Man Who Laughs*, and eventually morphed into the modern icon of Batman's the Joker. So, I want to talk about some of these motifs that you discuss in your essay, like the Mad Gasser or the uh, the Joker. The Joker is a symbol of chaos, basically, and a symbol yeah. of anarchy.
8: Yeah. So. you know uh, although, uh, uh, although I remember that in the in the first movie in the first uh, uh, movie from Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy you remember how uh, the Batman presents himself to uh, uh, this girl who was uh, uh, like uh, the, the girl that was his uh, long-lost friend you know from childhood and he calls himself so, someone who rattles the cage. Rattling the cage is very, you know, anarchical.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, in, in,
8: in a very way, in 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 a, in a, in an interesting way, the Joker and the Batman are the same. They are like battling the system from from the underground. You know, they are they are not part of the status quo. They are they are fighting the status quo. For their own uh, ends, you know, the Batman in order to, in his uh, point of view, to, to install order, you know, order in a city that is going corrupt. And that's where I think that anarchy can be seen as a force of good when it's battling a system that is suffering from stagnation. Or you can see it as something that is, you know, chaotic. Which is something that is trying to destabilize, you know, a, a, a system that is in order. Which will be, you know, like the, the the nature of the Joker. So in a way, it's kind of like the same energy applied on different instances in order to to, to reach uh, different different goals. And I find that very, very interesting. And and I didn't think about that while I was writing the essay, but for some reason, you know, afterwards, I uh, started to think about that.
5: Right. Yeah. It's 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 interesting how. Yeah. That that there you go. The whole idea of the trickster. Mm-hmm. You know, and the. These different figures, you know, is because I've I've had the discussion with Micah about the man who laughs and how that eventually became the Joker. So this is a very mm-hmm. old motif, a very old archetype. Um and you also talk about, you know, V for Vendetta, the character yep. in that as well. That cool little picture that you have that I want to use as the uh picture for this episode. With okay. uh, you know, the alien taking off the V for Vendetta mask, you know, the mm-hmm. well the, the guy Fox mask, you know. Mm-hmm. Um But but something going into that and there's a paragraph later on in the later on in the essay. And uh it's interesting because there's some cross-pollination here because Susan Demeter St. Clair actually brought this up totally organically. I was gonna bring this up with you. But uh well, she brought it up in the in the context of the Soviet Union and the fall of communism. But I thought this was interesting. Still given how several countries famous for their high levels of UFO activity in past decades also suffered periods of social repression and political authoritarianism, e.g. Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Mexico, etc. Looking for a possible link between this non-terrestrial phenomenon and episodes of earthly unrest is not without appeal. Of course, if a statistical and reliable link were to be corroborated, and we eschew the simplistic interpretation of UFOs as psychological delusions induced by mass hysteria, we'd still be left with the insurmountable task of finding an explanation for the activity, not unlike the metaphorical chicken and egg conundrum. Are UFOs somehow attracted? Are conducive to manifestations of profound social change? Or is the phenomenon directly or indirectly responsible for such events? Which is going to go into something I want to read from your essay, Smiles, um, what Red Pill says there. So there's some more cross-pollination. But... when you pointed this out, I was like yes, "That's absolutely right. Brazil and Mexico for its are big u f o flat areas, and mm-hmm. but they've all experienced a ton of authoritarianism through years, so it's almost like is is this a manifestation desires almost uh, a manifestation of that trickster element
8: yeah i mean Brazil um was run by a military junta. For, for many, many decades. It was I think it was until the 1970s, possibly, when they started to gradually move toward uh, democracy, yeah. right? And interesting because uh, it's in the... Ni- well, we have the cases from the 1950s, right? Antonio Villas-Boas, who is uh, forced against his will, you know, and another question about uh, kind of like a symbol of... Uh, Suppression, right? Force against his will to, to breathe, to mate with this, what seemed to be like a hybrid uh, human-alien female entity. Uh, and then in the 1970s, we have the, the famous uh, Colaris cases, uh, when, when people were being uh, attacked by this kind of like refrigerator-sized objects that were sh- uh, shooting beams at them and they were like app- apparently like for in a way that is uh, incomprehensible to mother science, draining blood from them. And that's why they were they st- will, they were called the chupas, you know, chupa in, in, in Portuguese and, and also in Spanish means suck. Mm-hmm. So there were these, these like uh, alien vampires, you know, that were running amok in this, in this region
5: Large and, blood-sucking and, refrigerators.
8: <laughs> yeah, imagine that, and and the military junta had no no choice but to go there, you know, to try to see what's going on, and and the, the they uh, came to the conclusion that indeed something, uh, in, uh unexplained was what, going on. They man- they managed to gather a lot of material, and there was this. Uh, 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 military, uh, I think he was a, I don't know, a captain or what, uh, who then went uh, later when he retired, went on the record and said, Yeah, I mean, the phenomenon is, was real and, and, and it appeared before us while we were investigating and we didn't know what it was. It wasn't something mundane. And, and I also talked about one of my favorite uh, UFO cases of all time, which is the Voronezh case yeah. that was happening in Russia, just as the iron wall was falling down, you know, and and, and it's uh, so confounding. Uh, uh, I, I didn't mention this on the, on the essay, but one of the things that fascinates me about that case is not just the fact that these uh, uh, nine foot tall uh, giant cyclops, you know, were beaming uh, uh, <laughs> And, 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 and rendering children invisible and, and you know and, and doing all, all sorts of you know chaos in, in, in these uh, Russian parks, but also that the witnesses claimed <coughs> excuse me that they saw a symbol that in ufological annals it is equated with the Uno case and the umo case, is uh, largely considered to be a fraud, to be a hoax, perpetrated uh, during the 1960s and 70s, mainly, largely in Spain and France, also, in, I think, in Argentina, even in, in other parts of Latin America. But most, most uh, ufologists consider the humo case to be a big hoax. And yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> you see... In this case, which for all, it, I think everybody thinks it's genuine, I and mean, uh, most ufologists think that the Boronish case is genuine, but here you have, in a genuine case, a symbol that is a, a part of a UFO deception. So that to me is uh, a. <laughs> more of an example of the tricksterish and self-negating nature of the, of the UFO phenomenon which i think is one of the reasons why science has such a big problem in trying to to get a grip of of it you know it's, ju- it's not just a question of saying okay well maybe yeah maybe beings from another planet despite all our assumptions have managed to reach our planet and find our insignificant little planet is, is third rock, third rock from the sun. So it's so interesting that it, it, it it's it's worth their while to come here. But the way that they behave themselves, it's 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 just something that <laughs> is probably the reason why they'll never manage to to accept it. At least not, you know, astronomers like Neil deGrasse Tyson. But maybe. Yeah. parapsychologists, or people like Dean Radin and Robert Sheldrake, those are the people who will manage to, I think, cast a new path, a new direction, not only to understand the UFO phenomenon, but also to open up a new branch of physics, which probably will become the the main branch of physics in the 21st and 22nd century.
5: Yeah, it's like they come here from light years away just to come do incredibly stupid, weird things yeah just to give pancakes to to, to chicken <laughs> yes. farmers. That's the second time that's come up tonight <laughs> I
8: <love> that
5: cake. <laughs> yeah that's one of the best for sure that just mm-hmm. <laughs> give it to some farmer who doesn't know what what's going on like well, they gave us some pancakes and uh they and it, it's like crap <laughs> and, they, and they took off um, <laughs> cool. well that's and that's something
3: that uh uh red pill talks about in his essay is that it's uh these high strangeness cases aren't really outliers it's like the phenomenon itself at its truest core is all about liminality and outlying data strewn high strength
5: and i know i made the point before and i made this point also with uh you and uh soraya and Wren uh, the other night, Red Pill, about the mundanity of the, also some of the, like, how just how mundane some of these things are. And mm-hmm. just how just how much is that, you know, to me, in some ways, like, you know, I, I come from a tradition where a lot of this stuff, you know, I started getting into the more spiritual aspects of this stuff, instead of looking at it from a uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, from kind mm-hmm. of like a, the more Christian point of view. And mm-hmm. to me, when I started looking at how the high strangeness and how mundane some of this stuff was, I was like, how does that serve any ulterior motive for Satan to, you know, <laughs> it just it just didn't make any <laughs> sense to me. I don't um, rule that out, but I don't rule some of that stuff out that the more Christian research talker, talk about. But it just, some of it's just not all that. You know what I mean? Mm
3: hmm. I, I think it's, I always found it ironic that one of the contributors to my favorite titled books, cyber biological studies of the imaginal component in the UFO contact experience, uh, is an author named Carl Roche who, uh, did an, uh, an article called, um, UFOs as eight, um, agents of cultural deconstruction. Yeah. Well, I think mm-hmm. ultra terrestrial agents of cultural deconstruction It had more rhythm. Uh, and it, there's that, that element of deconstruction that, that, uh, rpj ref- references in in his essay and that i think is is at the heart of of this phenomenon and why i think uh red pill you know was so adept at, at focusing on that aspect of the phenomenon its its seeming targeting of uh marginal populations and mm-hmm. um and and creating and making them even more marginal by co- by being uh, so absurd in manifestation, uh, but uh, the the irony for me was that Carl Rosh apparently was also one of these like D and D is you know you know causing Satanism to <laughs> run rampant. Like oh please, but it's like well, I really thought you were brilliant. and really had this great idea about UFOs, and yet he also apparently was aligned with with the you know kids shouldn't be playing D and D because they're going to turn into Satanists.
5: Yeah, I, I mean I've gotten. I'll say it. I've I've gotten away from some of those ideas. I mean, you were there, smiles, when I did the uh, the panel discussion, yeah. and I was kind of pushing towards that way of talking about some of like how does this? I should have used the term mundanity. I think it would have been a little better. But um, you know, I was trying to push like how does this kind of this this weird stuff fit in with an overall agenda? Because it really doesn't. You really can't put it in a box. That's the unless, problem. Unless it's it, it's designed to take you out of the box.
8: Yeah, it's, exactly.
3: It's designed to make you think outside the box and to, to question uh, both the the society and civilization you find yourself in, um, and the religion that you've subscribed to. And that's that's that personal alchemy element again that uh, Red Pill talks about in his essay. That you know, for a lot of us, you know, the the search for truth about UFOs or whatever. You know, becomes when we could become as obsessed as we are. uh, You know, a a self transformation uh, process. And um, you know, he also alluded to how John Keel, you know, was afraid to or warned people about. Maybe you don't want your kids looking into this stuff. And and I think that there's something to that. You know, Greg, uh, Greg, in his essay and uh, and other appearances, you know, has been referencing this awesome interview from like 1978 with uh, Valet and Jerome Clark, where like look you know it's important to like from be like an anthropologist and go experience this phenomena but also you know be aware that you know it, it since it's all about beliefs and the manipulations thereof uh, you need to be prepared for chapel perilous you know you need to not go into this just you know willy-nilly um <laughs> set and setting for those uh uh, psychedelic entheogen users you know, <laughs> you know yeah don't. be
5: careful what you what you're dealing with always be leery i i definitely can see that part for sure because yeah. like you said uh, the trickster element is high in this you don't know what you're dealing with
8: and 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 i think you hit uh, the nail on the head Smiles. i mean set and setting i mean this idea of that there are things out there that force you to think outside the box that's why nowadays I think that UFOs and psychedelics have have so much in common. You know, I mean, uh, people used they 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 tend to view both UFOs and psychedelics in such binary terms. You know, oh, you know, the UFOs are here to save us. You know, they're here to you know bring us to the fifth dim- dimension of peace and love. It's oh, the, blue a, avians, no, no. the blue avians the
5: blue avians are here no.
8: the, the, the aliens are here to <laughs> to to enslave us and they are they're robbing they're stealing our dna they're stealing our eggs and our and our sperm and they're making a hybrid race to replace us it's the same thing that when 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 you Heard in the 1980s, you know, in, in in the campaign of Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs, you know. This is your brain on drugs, <laughs> and that's the fried egg on the pan, you know. Any questions? And 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 nowadays, there are, or, 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 or there, there was a t- the, the times when t- Timothy Leary said, well, you know, the, you, the drugs will will cure everything, you know. They 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 will prepare mankind to to. To a new step in evolution, and obviously all of that kind of like died down with with the the end of the 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 summer of love, and also with Charles Manson. You know, it's interesting how Charles Manson and Randas they came to be who they were because of the use of psychedelics. And and while one became a person who is you know professing love and, and professing compassion and professing you know. Uh, good toward mankind. The other one was, you know, just this, uh, you know, self-serving a-hole who managed to manipulate the people around him and, you know, convince them to do all these atrocious things, including, you know, m- murdering innocent people. Is the same compound, different result, and that's why I feel it's the same with UFOs. I, I feel that like smile say i'm questioning where, what's the proper set and setting for a ufo experience what is it that, so, that some people when they have a ufo experience they can uh, become traumatized for life or to them it's one of like the most uh, incredible and life altering experience for the better of their life i want to to find the answer to that you know because i feel this is something that we have neglected. And you have to understand that maybe uh, UFOs are neither here to save us or to damn us. You know, I think maybe UFOs are tools, like Smile says, are tools that are intended to one first think outside the box and second, I feel, to understand that What we think is reality, in quotes, is just a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of a much uh, broader, larger, complex, uh, and wonderful, you know, realm that we are just starting to 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 ambition, and we're trying to ambition it with our five limited senses, um, with this, you know, wetware. Uh, brain that it has also uh, a, a limit in in, in uh, memory capacity and in processing, and with that we're trying to comprehend something that seem, that seems to hint that it, this is something beyond our you know imagination.
5: Yeah, very well said. It's, I was thinking of uh this is your brain on this is your brain, this is your brain on UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Um Spiles, your essay is called Trufo versus UFO Planetary Poltergeist and Weapons of Mass Enchantment. Um in this essay I think there's a section that you write that uh, for me really hits the nail on the head about this subject. And we've talked about this, not just about with UFOs, but in cases like uh, Black Eyed Kids, the uh, Slender Man stuff, the people saying they're seeing Slender Man, uh, Men in Black even. Uh, But you hit it on the head. The UFO phenomenon exists in a synergistic cybernetic interface with humanity. Whatever the true nature of UFOs, they interact with us within several different milieus. All of which are influenced by the media and culture, the media and culture in turn feeds back into the phenomena in a continuous cycle. I love that
8: mm-hmm.
5: yeah. what we'll kind of unpack that just a little bit okay yeah
3: so I uh, the, the two uh, main sp- uh, barbs of the spear uh, my essay this this parapsychological aspect, this idea that there's enough Uh, Information and evidence from our our limited understanding of parapsychology and luminous phenomena, balls of light phenomena, earth lights, and and, um, uh, humanity's historic long-time belief that balls of light often uh, are manifestations of non-corporeal consciousness, be it our ancestors, our spirits, or angels, aliens, demons, some, some alien others. Um, and couple that with the fact that I was alluding to earlier, this idea of the potential manipulation of people's beliefs in the phenomena, and maybe even manifestations of the phenomena or things, a technology to imitate the the phenomenon. And so, the uh, planetary poltergeist aspect is is this uh Gaian consciousness, geopsychy, uh, weird um, psychic. Interface mechanism that I uh, believe is likely at play in the phenomena that 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 there's something on this planet that uh, may just be a natural phenomenon that we interact with and somehow it gives us access to this uh, non-local, non-temporal um, information field that is reality at its core, maybe, uh, and that we often experience glimpses of through uh, spontaneous psychic phenomena, paranormal manifestations. And, you know, of course, that's entirely highly speculative. Okay, you know, I, I I believe that to be likely true, but you know, does it change the fact that I have to go buy groceries and pay my mortgage? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, Unfortunately, uh, right? Yeah, not usually, but occasionally. Um, and on the other hand, again, the human uh, m- manipulation of this this uh, idea that there could be covert folklore warfare going on that 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 uh, yeah. human. Uh, Storytelling and narrative have been weaponized. We've heard a lot uh, in the last several years about this idea of fake news and the manipulation of of narrative uh, for for political action. This is this is just standard psychological warfare that humans have been waging against each other forever. You know, I had this idea that you know, what if religion? You know, I'm, i I I feel my I'm a spiritual person, but I also have been uh, skeptical of religions since I was a child. Uh, this idea that you know, if somebody figures out some natural phenomena that occurs, but nobody else knows about it, they can and have been known to use that knowledge to their own advantage over other humans. You know, if you know mm-hmm. there's clips, you can scare the bejesus out of you know the the, the locals who don't understand uh, the you know what's going on that there's a natural uh, phenomena at work, and it can seem awfully scary. And if you can spook the natives. You can uh manipulate their beliefs and more importantly their actions and that's it's at that level these beliefs that we operate on these myths that we believe in that influence our day to day lives and uh, can influence a person's uh, uh who they vote for for instance um if you 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 know if somebody's manipulating your beliefs and mm-hmm. i i so the other aspect of this is this weapons of mass enchantment, this idea that um, in the modern experiencing of these weird phenomena that seem to imply encounters with alien others there seems to be um the manipulation by these different human groups and so in my essay i tried to illustrate a lot of uh possible uh avenues for investigation of that very thing from the documentation related to the 1950s robertson panel and their flat stating that you know this has psychological warfare uh use and that we should be uh, researching it both to use it t- to our own advantage as well as to defend against it and also the uh, creating the ridicule factor that surrounds uh, uh, the, the the subject um, from their perspective and their documents saying you know well we need to educate people so that they're not so easily influenced by these kinds of uh, campaigns uh, or reports of strange uh, aerial activity uh, and also so that they don't people don't freak out and jam that the, the communications channels but They also then were also like, well, we should get – we should debunk it. We should get people to be ridiculed for this um, so that they don't even look into it. But I think that the societies and civilizations do that naturally. That's just kind of the natural uh, system, at least in Western cultures it seems like, as opposed to indigenous and aboriginal cultures where they already had – a place in their societies for people <laughs> coming back with strange stories of weird encounters. Um, you know, Westerners just uh, seem to dismiss that wholeheartedly and, and, and have latched on to this, what we've described earlier, this this religion of scientism. Um, so the essay goes into a lot of different uh, avenues looking at some of the classic UFO lore, the cases that I grew up reading about as a child and going, oh my god, these are actual examples of probable, you know, first contact. God, these uh-huh. aliens are so weird and just seem so preoccupied with doing the same kinds of things that we would do, like taking soil samples and and uh, you know, taking water and whatever and um, endlessly, endlessly, endlessly doing doing things that just make no freaking <laughs> sense, you know, and it's like the abduction phenomena, you know, I, I for a while I was really you know, like, wow, this, this seems really real to me. I mean, 1979, you know, I was hearing my grandmother uh, that she had a radio station in upstate New York that this, uh, this abstract artist uh, had been hypnotizing people and finding out that, you know, they were all seeing beings. uh, All people are all around the world are seeing the same beings and they've they've never met each other and they're describing the same things. And it's like, I was convinced by that. And uh, close encounters came out and guess what? It's the anniversary of that now. Um, and I was I totally bought into it, and now I'm like, no, I think it's much more interesting than that. Um, I, I think it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to think of this in in classic terms. And and, and again, going to RPJ's uh, essay, this we, we peop, the majority of you folks, um, meaning UFO community people my peeps uh <laughs> still trapped in this sci-fi pulp version of uh, uh of uh, understanding the phenomena this this surface literalist interpretation of well it's aliens they're they're coming from there and ke- coming here and yeah well maybe they've you know they're coming through dimensions or whatever to the to the wormholes or whatever but it's they're still like you know classic spaceship-faring entities whereas i think that there's something much more weird going on
5: here uh, oh, but that's yeah. That's perfect cover for it. Much more weird and much more profound than that, I think. I I, I think we get, I think those of us that have these views, I think that the normal UFO, UFO researcher looks at us and says, well, you're just debunking it. And my response would be, no, we're actually looking at it in a totally different new light and, it may actually be more important to the human condition than aliens coming from another planet. Yeah. It's just my thought.
3: As much as I still want to experience that kind of contact, you know, I mean, I grew up watching star Wars for God's sake.
5: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's still there. All that science fiction stuff. Um, you also point out in your essay about this idea of, people uniting under the common threat of a of a threat from outer space and how that's yeah. been kind of psychologically manipulated as well. And yeah. I just wanted to point out on that that uh, because in his essay, Red Pill mentions V for Vendetta. And, you know, in the original comic version of Watchmen, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Good
8: point.
3: Yeah, and this is again. This is an aspect that I've been watching for the last you know decade or so or two, um, develop in the UFO scene. It it obviously goes way back. I think the earliest example I have is 1915. Um, But you know, prominent people in our society uh, have been making these overtures about this that this would be the way to to uh, unite humanity on a global scale against some alien external uh, threat and. Honestly this is this is something that really concerned me for a while perhaps <laughs> likely more than it needed to but um it it just it seems like a theme that's been there and and again Jacques Vallée somebody who I've uh, long respected you know in 1979 one of his most important books messengers of deception talked oh, yeah. about the then recently declassified documents that talked about uh, the Martian conspiracy the the uh, allies uh, the American and British allies uh, secret group the LCS London controlling section that apparently the Brits called the Martians probably because they were such weird cats. Um, you know, these are magicians and, and, and disinfo guys and people uh, trying to think outside the box and how to deceive their axis opponents. And this idea that maybe, you know, they, after they'd set up all these, uh, amazingly powerful engines of deception that helped us win the war against the Nazis and the axis powers that, uh, well, you know, how do we prevent another great, conflagration uh, from happening and wouldn't, you know, would, would that external threat be the way to go? And there seems to be this theme through the high echelons of the elites that run this planet that that this might be the way to do it. And whether or not, you know, the phenomenon, whatever it is, represents UFOs, it again looks like there's been humans uh, capitalizing on this, and at the end of the essay, you know, I, I I lament that we don't really have any true hard and fast evidence that there's been any kind of program like this. We've heard rumors for a long time about Project Bluebeam and this idea yeah. that there's these programs to do these things, and we've got tons of evidence that they these kinds of again scaring the the, the natives, spooking the natives type type of scenarios. That have have been proposed, including like to destabilize Cuba, you know, to foment a coup there, um, uh, have been put forth. And we know of some that have been actually done, but such a large scale operation, uh, as I once said to Stanton Friedman, don't the Illuminati have paper shredders? Um, (laughs) You know, this is all off books kind of stuff. So, you know, you can't really easily prove it. But again, the, the there seem to be these tells there uh, from the, the elites that this has been talked about, and even um, uh, Carol Rosen, who was uh, uh, working with uh, Werner von Braun, one of those Nazi paperclip scientists that we brought brought over, you know, has, uh, allegedly she says told her that, uh, that that the powers that be were going to, um, you know, re- do a series of escalating threats that you know one of which was the the th- threat of extraterrestrial invasion as a way of uniting humanity, mm-hmm. and this really seemed likely to me for a while. And, um, uh, it's the paranoiac side of me, I'm sure just, uh, succumbing to this idea, but, um, it felt, felt important to me to just, here's all the information in a broad overview so that people can look at it and go, yeah, should, is that something I need to worry about? And even if they're not worried about it, they've, at least they've been exposed to it so they're not going to buy into it. And this gets back to something that McKenna, again, one of the, uh, uh, Scenarios that he spun out uh, was actually kind of similar to, as I alluded to earlier, Valais' fear that the phenomena in its worst manifestation would swing uh, the pendulum of science and belief back from the science uh, end of the spectrum to the belief end and the dark ages and that uh, McKenna s- speculated at some point that we should we should inoculate ourselves against belief, because what's likely to happen is that there will be some kind of mass sighting on a global scale of undeniable proportions. And that the, it, it, imagine, if you will, and this is I think several science famous science fiction people have posited this. You know, UFOs appear in our skies. nothing we can do about it. Um, and then people around the planet start believing that they're receiving communications from it. And then the UFOs disappear. And what does humanity do? Probably fall into the deepest, darkest pit of despair that it's ever been to in, uh, been through because, you know, we will have seen a potential salvation, you know, symbol, and then it's gone. And so McKenna was like warning, look, Hey, you need to inoculate yourself against this potential, uh, of uh, phenomenon because, you know, it, it could wipe away you know, uh what we consider civilization and put us into the very kind of dark age that, that uh Valet was alluding to. So but
5: There's you know, a lot of food for thought there. I'm gonna have to process one. <laughs> wow. Well go on with what you're saying. Just
3: uh you know how likely that is anymore, you know, but uh it it, it I think you know, it was the interview that uh Susan and and Red Pill and I did on Greg's show. Uh, Red Pill asked a question of us, something to the effect of like, "Oh yeah, if 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 we didn't have the the history of the phenomenon to inform our understanding of it, such as it is now, and it started happening now, how might its manifestations be different now than then? Like say going back to 1947 and onward, and." You know without that those decades of uh experience and knowledge of the weirdness uh how might it it manifest differently and and how might we come to, to grips with it now and and i think that was a great question uh and and it's it's the kind of question that i think uh is inherent in this tome and all the essays therein
5: uh, agreed agreed well gentlemen we are out of time um I think that, uh, we need to continue this discussion of smiles, particularly as well, because, you know, we've not had Mm -hmm. you on, uh, before. And so I think, you know, we could do a full interview on some of this, just some of the stuff that's just in this essay alone. Um, red pill, thank you so much for being here as well. I mean, you've been making the rounds lately, sir, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) red pill, first off, um, what's next for you? Um, what can we expect to hear from you in the near future?
8: Oh, no, God. (laughs) That's the hardest question, right? I I honestly think that I said, like, everything I had to say about UFOs with this essay. I don't know if I have anything more interesting to say about it. Maybe I can uh, find, you know, and and if I do, I'll probably uh, spew it out first, either at the Daily Grail, Or mysterious universe where I am one of the semi-regular contributors, and also on on my own web page that I just started uh, this year, called appropriately enough absurdbydesign.com. You know, because uh, and and I don't know. I'll, I'll try to also help my peeps, people like Smiles and Greg and all of those, if if they think that I can help them in order to uh, put their stuff out there via, you know, uh, a book in which I can maybe help them design the covers or maybe help them, you know, illustrate the chapters or whatever, I will be more than happy to do that, you know. I mean, I think that... I'm just really happy to be part of this uh, community, not because I think, oh, yeah, I have all the answers or whatever. Not far from that. I'm I'm happy to be part of the community because I'm I'm with my tribe. You know what I mean? I'm I'm with people who are passionate about the things that I was passionate about ever since I was a kid, and I I had no one to talk to about them. So now that I found my tribe, (laughs) I had no intention to leave it. Excellent, excellent.
5: Right on. And uh, smiles for you. And uh, actually, we have an announcement to make as well. So,
3: yeah. uh, So, uh, announcement is that uh, Consider Normal is going to be among the new lineup of shows coming onto the Anomaly Radio Network, the web radio
2: station.
3: Yay! (laughs) Uh, The web radio station that I've been doing since two thousand. Uh, originally launched to promote uh, an ill fated UFO conference, but uh, has lasted, oh gosh, almost two decades now and uh, streams great paranormal and parapolitical, ufological, 14 anomalous content that uh, is originated from pretty much friends, people I know that I'm lucky enough to uh, have found who, as says, uh, are are my peeps that are, that are interested in these same subjects. So Conspiranormal will be uh, making its appearance, its debut on the Anomaly Radio Network, AnomalyRadio.com, very, very soon. Uh, beyond that, I'm still uh, working hard to get my nonprofit 501c3 Anomaly Archive, Scientific Anomaly Institute, Lending Library and Archive, uh, self-sufficient so that it can help preserve uh, the wealth of bizarre information that uh, constitutes uh, the ufological 14 parapsychological, the weird science uh, wing of the library, basically. And um, that's located here in Austin, Texas, org, And uh, cool. folks can find out more about me at smileslewis.com.
5: Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for being on and uh, staying line for us. But uh, guys, we're, we'll be back to close out the show with a little bit of Luke.
4: What to talk about, Adam. I mean why don't you why don't you ask me something and I'll try to impart we, we, my infinite we, wisdom.
6: We know, we know.
5: Yeah, interview we, Luke for a minute. So what uh what do you think about uh what do you think about them UFOs? Man them UFOs.
4: Um you we had you and I talked about like how I feel about UFOs, man. Uh, stuff, dude. Yeah, and stuff. <laughs> oh, uh I I don't know. I I I don't believe that they're physical crafts, you know, um coming yeah, you, into our atmosphere, you, landing, et cetera. I think it's more of a uh, mental phenomena,
6: you know.
5: You're 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 right you're right right there with me, man.
4: Yeah.
6: Yeah, I don't see like I don't see the motivation for aliens to be coming here over a span of decades.
5: Yeah. Uh, why would, massive, they, why would they mass. want to come here?
6: Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean if they're coming here, they would come here to either <laughs> take the planet, which they had done already. Uh, yeah. Or they'd come here once, observe everything, and be like, all right, we, now we know everything and that'd be that.
5: I mean, yeah. they haven't come here and mined the shit out of it and left. Right. Right. According like to the new was, agers, right? That was always the, that yeah, you know, you'd, you'd think at a certain point, just it's. I, I'm not going to sit here and say well it's all in our heads, but I think there's a definite. It, um, you guys know that. I mean, there's. You know, I believe that there's a definite intelligence behind it. It's just not an intelligence that comes from outer space. It's an intelligence that comes from here, this
4: planet. It always has been. Yeah. Here. I, it, it is strange that you get like a, a repetition of um, the, the image of the gray you know, like the gray aliens, like the, the, the fact that people share that same, um, perception of them is, is, uh, interesting. And it goes to show that there's some consciousness being shared there, you know? Right. Um, so, so that, that's really like the, the thing that the, the people who take it, like literally that they're physically here has to kind of hinge on is that, you know,
5: there's, there's a lot of weird stuff, man. I mean, uh, and there's a I, I I just to cover this real quick, there is a huge need in some of the more of the nuts and bolts ETH to really feel like there's actually something going on because nothing has happened, like the aliens haven't come, disclosure hasn't happened, and right now it's just like people that believe this stuff some of their like some of their research is not good case in point like I guess this guy just wants to believe but I was listening to another podcast right and in World War one right before we got into it in 1917 in 1916 and this will all make sense here in a second I told Rob about this earlier but in 1916 there were all these explosions in DuPont plants across the country, mostly on the East Coast.
6: Which we live by one of those, right? Didn't there it be could be. Yeah,
5: well, DuPont's up the road, but I don't know if it's that
6: one. I don't well, know if it's... I just want to interject and say they built this place that we are now broadcasting Yeah, essentially. From. <laughs> right.
5: Yeah, essentially. I, I'm not sure how long that one's been around, but I, it, this this one was... Since the 30s. Since the 30s? Okay, so it was after World War One, but like, so, But these plants were blown up. Well... The Germans actually were sending, we know now, the Germans were actually sending spies over here to blow these plants up. And the reason they were doing that is because the DuPont Company and the American government were making munitions for the British to blow up and to use against Germany. So it was a way of decreasing the amount of munitions that were being done. So this was all kind of happening, and it was kind of happening in secret. Nobody was saying this is what it was. Some of the Germans were coming off the, they were coming off boats off the East Coast, and they would come in, blow these plants up, leave. Some of them were here, um, living here and doing it. Well, this guy on this radio show says that this was, because he wrote a book about the real war of the world. So this was real military um the military encounters with flying saucers whatever this guy's trying to say that this was the aliens that did it because there were supposedly craft seen by the uh, munitions plant
6: so do you think people are just kind of grabbing at straws because of the yeah. like boredom in their community
5: yeah, because a, like, a, like 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 are are just trying to make a name for themselves or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you who this guy's name is. I'm not going to tell you the name of the radio show. I'll tell you offline. But like, it, it was just it was just ridiculous because all I had to do was take my phone out, type in German industrial sabotage in America in World War One, and pulled up all kinds of stuff. And it's like. Easily debunked. What he said was easily debunked, and easily found. You know, this is all common. This is it's not common knowledge, but well, it's you can a, find readily it available. There's
4: knowledge, a, yeah. right. There's a huge group of listeners though that are here. They're they're feeling like the sensational part of it. You know, like they it, right. the, the logical part
6: kind of disappears. It fades away. You know, because the sensationalism like takes over. Yeah, um, and well, like, and, and like I do to too to a that. certain extent. Like I love watching the documentaries on Netflix and stuff about just anything bizarre.
5: You're entertained but, by but, them,
6: but I don't become fanatical over it or hold right. up as like fact. Or but on the other hand, though, there has been a handful of um, cases with people like trained witness type um, witnesses, you know, like uh, police officers or military and any other trained observer type of uh, people that are are very bizarre that I can't really explain away as not being some sort of physical craft. Sure, that kind of kind of holds me. To, it's enough to hold me to it, but
5: but I mean, I could look at that from a non ETH point of view just as
6: well. Well, you I'm know? saying that there's a handful that are hard for me to to yeah. really explain away as well, non ETH.
5: There's but. physical markings on the ground. There's the one guy that supposedly, um, you know, approached a craft in Canada and he got burned. He had this weird burn pattern on his body. Um, But, you know, I could easily look at that and say, well, you know, what we've talked about with Walter Bosley before, who we've got coming back on, by the way, soon, you know, about the secret space program and about the breakaway civilization. I mean, these could easily be that, um, just as easily as the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And you got to look at it. You just got to look at it, you know, like this is the E.T. is not the only explanation.
6: Sure. Well, until we know for a fact what it is, there's going to be. Yeah. It's got to be a multitude so, of
4: the, the three things that, that throw a wrench in my belief, though, you know, the crop circles, the frequency of sightings, like so many sightings across the world from all countries. Not, you know, it's not just a U.S. thing. It's all over the place. And then also yeah. uh, also the, the loud bangs, you know, heard uh, with a whole town of people. Yeah, the whole those, those are bizarre. Right. And then radiation spikes in the area, too. You know, what could that be? I guess I'm leaning toward government projects or something, but, like, that's that's kind of a long shot, too, you know?
5: Well, that could be a part of it. Um, breakaway civilization could be a part of it. Um, it could be that you're dealing with a primarily spiritual phenomenon that can leave um, physical traces in the world. Um I'm pretty radically non ETH. So, like, I have to take myself kind of out of this conversation in some <laughs> ways because I'm so radically, I'm, I, I can't, I'm so radically non ETH that I can't, I, I get can't get I'm I'm outside it's not, of it.
6: All I'm saying is just because it's not the only option doesn't mean it's not still an option. Yeah. That's
5: all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm so I, I
4: non-ETH,
6: yeah. it hurts.
5: <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be a shirt. <laughs> well, that's my problem. I'll say this: is that I'm kind of afraid that I'm like so non-ETH that I won't listen to any. Uh, other people's ideas because I'll just shut them down. Yes. The thing is, though, when you say that the DuPont plants in World War One were destroyed <laughs> by aliens, when I can easily say, no, it wasn't space aliens, but it was Germans, you got, there's a problem.
6: It's that doesn't Germans, support
5: man. the ETH argument. Why is, that always
6: is it always Germans? Roswell was Germans, DuPont was Germans. Well, it's just the Germans, man.
5: They're <laughs> causing
6: problems. They did it all throughout
5: the 20th century, right? <laughs> So, uh, the next few shows, we're kind of getting away from the UFO stuff. It's fun, but we've kind of bashed it to death. So I really want to go, uh, I've got the next few shows scheduled. So we've got Robert W. Sullivan coming on. We're going to talk about cinema symbolism. I'm also going to try to do a Patreon only episode with him about Manly P. Hall. Ooh. So kind of getting back into some like, a uh, uh, you know, secret society stuff. Um, Walter Bosley, who you know, has written about UFOs, but well, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, Ambrose Bierce and Destination Carcosa, which anybody has ever watched the first episode, the first series or first season of True Detective would know what that means. And uh, Tom and Jenny are coming on from 13 o'clock podcast, and we're going to talk about a lot of weird stuff too. Nice. So, um, kind of going to get away from the UFO stuff for just a little bit. Um, so I think it's time to watch Game of Thrones, guys. Yeah, it is. So, uh, Luke, want well, to thank you for coming on. You're welcome, and, dude. And uh, thank everybody for listening to <laughs>
1: Conspiradormal! Conspiradormal!